Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, colleague, and good friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's the start of the NBA season officially tonight. Not for the Pacers, but the NBA season is beginning. Which is uh, wild. It feels so weird. I Very random question. Have you ever seen That So Raven before? Yes. Uh, I don't know. If, I'll have to send it to you. Did you see uh, the Sports Center Twitter account put out a... Uh, um a that's so raven theme we're back uh no uh, i have not seen this okay i'm sending it to you it's amazing actually made my morning um so i'm sending it to you i encourage everyone who has not seen it to go watch it because it's it's very good it's with the that's so raven theme song um yeah i i kind of really appreciate that we're just easing into the season and not starting off with 12 games tonight because that would Put a damper on my enjoyment because I just want to enjoy everything. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it's always better when they just have the two games and then everybody's in one place watching the same thing. So I don't know how excited I am to watch the Lakers, but well, yeah, that's I'm going to do it. Fair point. <laughs> I'm not super excited to watch the Lakers either. I do think I'm more excited to watch them this year than last year, to be fair. Uh, I always enjoy Lonnie Walker. Um, so that's you know that's my rant instead of lebron or anthony davis i'm excited to watch line walker which is sure as money, most people as yeah. most people would be <laughs> yeah uh yeah what are we here to do today today after our last episode when we asked for mailbag questions and over the weekend we have a lot of mailbag questions to answer i think we have 35 to 40 questions wow. so okay. we have segments set up um a lot of pacer stuff is about to be discussed so buckle up everybody <laughs> I'm very excited. I also I have one for uh, for fun stuff. I have something I want to talk to you about. Uh, so I'm excited for that. I don't care how long we, we record. I have like this is kind of like my last chill day before the season. So I'm going to make the most of it. I don't want to keep you for too long, but I'm excited. Uh, how do you want to get us started off? I know we want to start off with the uh, strictly Ben math questions because we have a lot of Benedict Mathering questions. And so we just have an entire segment to get into here. Yes, the fan base and fans from other fan bases are all very interested in Benedict Matherin. So, yeah, we'll just start off there. This one comes from Drew at Naptown Drew. Seemed like Benedict Matherin was truly drawing contact on shooting fouls and the refs are respecting him so far. Do you foresee him continuing to get the benefit of the whistle into the regular season? Which just Uh, for frame of reference for people who didn't see all of it or don't know, he averaged 6.8 free throw attempts per game during preseason. Yeah, I, I, I that's a good question. I think to me, like I feel like what he's doing is replicable, replicable as long as he's getting plays run for him in the same way. Because I think, like we we talked about this on the last pod, it's not necessarily that his handle is taking some massive jump or that he's just doing crazy things on the ball. Like they're doing a really good job of leveraging his downhill ability while making it easy for him to do that. Um, so I don't I don't think he's going to average seven free throws per game during the season, but I do think there's an encouraging uh, belief that he can be somebody who who draws quite a few free throws. I mean, I don't think yeah, I don't think there was anything illegitimate about the contact yeah. that he was drawing. It was definitely him playing half court bully ball with you know catching 
getting the ball on the catch and getting his defender trailing behind him and then just kind of reaming his body into people once he got mm-hmm. into the paint and being a very physical finisher. That said, I did do some digging. The last time a rookie reached that number of 6.8 free throw attempts per game in the preseason was Blake Griffin in 2011. Oh, wow. Um, Kyrie also did it in 2012. He averaged eight, but that was a lockout shortened preseason schedule. I think they only played two games. Mm -hmm. So this doesn't happen a lot. Evan Mobley led all rookies in free throw attempts last season, and he averaged 3.7. So during the broadcast, when Tyrese was sitting in for the Rockets game on Friday, he had mentioned that, you know, I think that Matherin's going to average five free throw attempts per game. And like if Matherin did that, that would be like Zion Luca Trey territory. So I think my main thing is is I definitely think he has a, a skill and like we said, a knack for drawing contact, and he's definitely not afraid. Like some mm-hmm. rookies, I don't necessarily want to use the word fear. That seems a little bit harsh, but some rookies will shy away from contact in their first season, and clearly that's not who Matherin is. But I do think he will get defended slightly differently. I don't think that we're gonna see you know, when he's coming off some of these staggers and immediately putting it downhill and getting into the paint, once teams see that, they're going to start bringing the passer's defender over into meetings of three and playing the big higher so that he can't just get downhill. Mm-hmm. And then more is going to be expected of his shot and his ability to pass out of those meetings. The Rockets did that on a couple possessions, and it bothered him a little bit because then it is putting more pressure on his handle to be able to use change of speed and, and still be able to get downhill or to you know shift those defenders in some way, shape, or form. And they did put defenders under against him a few times. So I don't think preseason's completely telling because you know opponents didn't know anything about him really headed into those games. And let's face it, they're not really doing heavy scouting reports for a preseason game, but... Um, I guess that's the way I would look at it. I think it's going to be more about what opponents do necessarily than I think that what he was doing wasn't, you know, legitimate contact drawing to summarize. Yeah, no, I think we're we're in lockstep on that. Uh, What is the next question? So we have Samuel Pippo says, seeing Matherin's potential as a go-to score, will the increase in shot attempts be significant in any way for Tyrese. Tyrese has the tendency to feed hot hands. Can they have two ball handlers during critical moments in the regular season? Ooh, that's a really good question, but I, I, I think that I'm probably, um, I want to say I'm still more bullish on, on Tyrese just taking more shots because I, I just am not, not that obviously not that Benedict can't handle the ball, but I think again, like he's not, it's like it's very much the TJ Warren thing in the last couple of years. Like or when 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 TJ was was TJ still was alive and healthy. Um, like yeah, you can get him the ball at the end of shot clocks or like you know in his spots. But again, it's not like he's not dribbling the ball up himself for the most part. Like there are going to be moments where he does for sure, and I'm sure that they're going to experiment more with that given what the year is. But I don't know if you would agree with that. But I think I'm probably just given what his handle is right now, I'm probably a little bit less worried about that. I mean, I don't want to make it a study in himness, so to speak. Like, <laughs> study, I don't want to t- study in him. That's sorry. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, I don't need it to be like a Skip Bayless debate from like yeah. 2011, where like, why did LeBron pass the ball on that clutch time situation? Like, and that's not what Samuel's saying here. But I think it can devolve into that type of a conversation. Yeah. But um, you know, we have brought up the quote from Kevin Pritchard before um, that he tweeted correcting his comment about you know the whole we need to manufacture that real star and then him saying we need somebody to help us in closing time they do need to find out who that is 
Um, do they have a primary scoring option, whether that's Tyrese Matherin or somebody that they're going to draft next season or, you know, wherever else they might acquire that person. And for Tyrese, it's still going to be about making the right play more than anything. There are spots where the right play is for him to shoot. He doesn't have to always be the player taking the last shot, but if the Mm -hmm. shot is there, you certainly want him to do it. Um, Matherin does help, but I think it goes back to what you said that right now he isn't doing a lot as primary. If you look at his numbers on synergy, I think he attempted like one shot in isolation during preseason and was like three of 10 as the pick and roll ball handler. So like he isn't a primary creator in that sense. When you get to the end of games, you're still probably going to have the ball in Tyrese's hands and then it's going to be up for Tyrese to make those types of decisions. And it does. It is somewhat like TJ Warren. TJ Warren was a guy who operated off screens and did a lot of play finishing away from the ball, but could still, you know, he did lead them in scoring um, during the bubble season and obviously mm-hmm. what he did in the bubble. But then we did see when he got into the series with the Heat and they started, you know, flooding the strong side when he came off of Iverson cuts, like, can he make passes out of that? Can he still be that creator type option when he's seeing aggressive coverages? And, you know, it's not time to necessarily think about that with regard to Matherin, but I think that they should work really well together. Um, I think they balance each other out really nicely, but the decision-making from Tyrese is still going to matter because he's still going to be the primary initiator in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, What is the next question? So we have Jim at J Nemo. How does the front office view Matherin, do you think? Will he be a corner franchise guy in the Paul George role for this team, or do they view him as like a really good second banana? I probably lean the latter, just kind of, you know, that I feel like that flows in a little bit with what we just talked about. Like, I think even if, um, even with some pretty substantial development happening in his handle, I don't think that he gets to be that, that Paul George level. Um, and that's not to like, that being said, unfair. though, I don't know if we would have thought that Paul George's handle that, would become Paul George's handle point. either. But but just to be fair, like in talking to other people, like I mean, our, our mutual friend PD like considers Paul George's handle development maybe the greatest handle development that's happened in modern basketball. So yeah. it is like it's just, like just just saying like that that's expecting a ton. So I don't know. I mean, I mean, he went from having like a loose handle where every time he split a screen, you thought, oh, the worst is about to happen to <laughs> going to OKC and he's freaking doing U-turn snake dribbles to get back to the three-point line. So, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I know uh, I know most fans listening to this podcast probably disagree with us, but I still watching Paul that 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 near MVP season he had in OKC was just amazing. That was so fun. Um, yeah. Or do you kind of feel the same way or where are you at with this? I mean, I think mainly like Matherin isn't Paul George, and that's not necessarily what this question is saying, but Paul George is ideally a really good second banana. Like, yes, he was a franchise cornerstone for the Pacers, but he even has said here recently with the Clippers that like, yeah, Kawhi Leonard's the number one option. Um, So my short answer is kind of like what Kevin Pritchard said at preseason media availability when he said, you know, people ask me, do we have a core? And his answer is maybe, but we're getting closer. I don't think that right now they fully know what Matherin is. You can't know that from four preseason games. Yeah. So I doubt even the front office has a strong idea of that. There's a lot more to see. Um, I don't currently see him as a primary creator to the degree that Paul George was. Um, on a really good contending team, I think Paul George is a second option. But in terms of like being able to be a franchise player for a small market team and still being able to get his own shot, I don't necessarily see that for Matherin right now. And he certainly has a very long, long, long way to go to have the same impact as Paul George on defense, which is another big piece of this. Like Paul George was very definitively a two-way player. 
Um, his defense was better than his offense to start his career. Um, that is not the case for Benedict Matherin right now. I rewatched that Houston game and like not to dampen anybody's enthusiasm about Matherin at all. I liked a lot of what we saw from him in preseason, but that guy is getting obliterated on screens. Yeah. Just absolutely knocked not out of place. He's really getting blown up in those situations. So that's going to be something to watch. Our next question comes from Urson Demir. I think that's how you pronounce it. He does a lot mm. of draft content um, at E Demir NBA. Benedict Matherin is my rookie of the year candidate. Do you expect he'll play 30 to 35 minutes a night and get at least 25% usage this season? Hmm. I'm, I feel like I'm TBD on 30 to 35 minutes just by virtue of Rick saying that it's yeah. going to be a 10 man rotation minimum. Um, but 25% usage. Uh, I feel like that's doable. I mean, what was his? I didn't even check. What was his usage during preseason? I think it was over thirty. Yeah, so I think I would be probably higher on the usage happening than than necessarily the minutes happening, just based on what we know so far. Yeah, I'm agree with you. The fact that Rick said they want to play ten deep and that they want to maintain competition. I mean, he even included in Halliburton when he said he didn't want to be playing guys big minutes. So. Right now, Matherin's also coming off the bench. So like last year, Duarte, for example, in games when he was a starter, averaged 29.7 minutes. And in games when he came off the bench, he averaged 23.9. So if Matherin continues to come off the bench, it doesn't seem as likely that he'll play 30 to 35. Mm. But if he comes off the bench, it seems more likely that he'll hit the usage mark. Yeah, because he's going to be the primary scorer in those situations versus if he's starting with Tyrese, not that Tyrese is a high usage guy, but you also have Buddy out there taking shots and potentially I don't know what Miles' situation is going to be. But if those two guys, if the Pacers have any inclination of trading either one of them, probably going to want to be trying to get them some shots. So that's in part why I kind of understood why Rick was bringing him in off the bench and playing him in some hybrid units. But I think I agree with you that the minutes mark is probably a little bit less likely unless trades happen. Um fairly early on, but I think that he can hit the 25% usage. Um, So moving to the next one, we have, I hope I'm not mispronouncing this, Bulat Guzman at Oren Brooklyn. He said, this is another person who I believe does draft content. I did not see Matherin being any worse than Jabari Smith and Keegan Murray. What makes him so special to you? And do you consider him as a top talent among this Indiana roster? Oh, wow. Um, I... I pers- not to not to like just totally refute that. I don't know about Benedict being as good as Jabari. Like just given what his defensive ceiling yeah. is. Um I think Keegan's maybe more of a conversation, but um as far as like actual ceiling, I feel like this is something I've been trying to think about a lot recently. Um I mean I don't know. I want to let you answer this one first because I'm still kind of toying this one in my head. Yeah, so he says what makes him so special to you, and I was thinking about this part that, like, if I were to tell you that such and such, any player got 13.5% of their usage in off-screen actions, so coming off screens, what archetype of player would you be imagining in your head when I told you that? Only 13, because... 13.5 is a fairly decent amount. There was only like, you know, 11, 12 people who got that much of their usage off of screens last year. I mean, like, just because... Ray Allen's one of my favorite players. I would think about Ray Allen. Yeah. Like in my head, I would be thinking about, you know, Justin Holiday, Doug McDermott. <laughs> that's a fair, that's a, it's probably a better way to go with it. But yeah. <laughs> but like, that's just what I, I mean, genuinely. Yeah. Cause like last year I looked this up. Here's the people that got at least 13.5% of their usage off screens. Bryn Forbes, 
Clay Thompson, Davis Bertans, Ben McLemore, Max Struess, Buddy Heald, Malik Beasley, Justin Holiday, Doug McDermott, Duncan Robinson, Steph Curry, Terrence Ross, Wayne Ellington, and Frank Jackson. That's the entire list. So in very few cases, like I'm not comparing him to Steph and Clay, but like looking at all those other guys, you in your head would not be thinking about a contact finisher guy in the half court that's basically playing bully ball in transition as well. Yeah. Like you would be thinking about a guy who's flying around screens as a movement shooter. And I do think that Benedict still has more of that to show than what we've seen so far. He's more curling the pin downs to this point in time. Mm-hmm. But like, that's what fi- I find so special about him is that when you're looking at those numbers, what you would be envisioning is not the way that Benedict Matherin is currently playing. Um, he was pretty much a force in transition during preseason and creating separation. I love the way when he's in a spot up situation that he creates separation with shoulder shimmies. Like it's not about his first step at all. It's about the initial um, way that he's faking his defender to shift that so that he can then get to the basket and can attack the closeout. I think like monitoring the way that a lot of the people on this team attack closeouts through the season is going to be very interesting, but that's the thing that I would say most that makes him so special to me right now, just based on these four games that we've seen. And then do I consider him as a top talent among this Indiana roster? Yes. Like I, I already think that, I mean, it's not like they have a ton of top talents on the roster right now. So I I don't feel like I'm going so far out on a limb to already put him up in that group. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And I, I just don't know how to answer the ceiling question because I don't, I don't want to cop out and say that it's kind of too early to tell, but yeah. I just, like, like you mentioned with the Paul George thing, like I think when people first saw Paul George, I mean, they're like, maybe he ends up being a really nice three and D wing who can run some, some things if his handle tightens out and then he turned into a top 75 player of all time. So what do I know? Um, what so the next, next one comes from Bogart Brando, who actually admittedly said he is a Sixers fan, but likes the Pacers young core is most entertained by them of the young core team. So that's cool. Bogart Brando Mav is his handle. And I'm going to like kind of paraphrase his question because some of it's stuff we've mm-hmm. already answered. He says he also agrees that he thinks he could win rookie of the year, but a lot depends on Heald and Turner. Having them give him a space floor is a benefit for him, but also may take shots away. So like this kind of goes back to the starting lineup question or lineups that Benedict might be in. Um, How do you feel about him being out there with Buddy and Miles? And what is that a net positive for him? Is that a net negative for him? I kind of want to attack the question from that angle. Um, I think being out there with Buddy is, I I would consider having him out there with Buddy as a net positive. Um, just given what the rest of the spacing, well, well, like, I mean, how many we could, I feel like we can count on one hand, how many players on this team have like legitimate shooting gravity. Um, so playing him alongside somebody who's actually going to maybe open up driving lanes a little bit more uh, like, yes, I guess that there's the potential where buddy's going to have more plays ran for him. But also I think like we saw in preseason, this is going to be a team that's very much so um, operating off of what they can get um, in kind of the flow a little bit. So I don't know. Do you kind of feel the same way? Yeah. I mean, he played some minutes with buddy. I think that my only thing there is, is that the two of them, which was one of the most fascinating things really for me from preseason is that they're running a lot of the exact same plays for both of them. Mm-hmm. So if they're both out there, like, yeah, I guess one of them will just be spacing off of it. And the other one won't be, it's more a case of like, like I said, in the prior question, like if you're trying to showcase the two of them, for trades to other teams early in the season, potentially, I don't uh, know that, but if, if you are that. doing that, then is it limiting what Benedict can do? Like that's in part, like I said, that's why I understood 
first of all, the idea of like making Benedict Mather and earn that starting spot and starting Chris right off the bat. And the fact that Chris has played with some of these other guys before might've been a factor of that as well, but that Matherin's going to have more space to do things in bench lineups. I mean, there were hybrid units too, like especially in the game in Charlotte where they played like Matherin, Neesmith, TJ and Miles out there. And the defense looked pretty decent in those minutes with those guys all playing at the same time. That was probably the best that the defense looked across the four games, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it's it's somewhat back and forth. I mean, one thing that was funny when I watched back that Rockets Pacer game is that I think it was at the end of the second quarter, like just thinking back to when we were doing the stock up, stock down series, when we did the Tari Eason pod, never in my life, if you had asked me, hey, if when Benedict Matherin gets drafted and Tari Eason gets drafted, do you think that Benedict Matherin will be defending Tari Eason? And yet, uh, yeah. and yet it happened like the Pacers. I didn't, I fully expected that they would play some super small lineups this year. So I believe they had Duarte, Matherin, Buddy, and TJ all out there at the same time with miles mm. and Matherin was defending Tari Eason. That just like blew my mind. Like it, he didn't get like destroyed or anything. They weren't really running a lot through Tari, but, um, those minutes didn't end particularly well for them. I don't think overall with playing that small, but um, just a thought. That is funny. Um, yeah. So I think that pretty much answers that one. Sam black is left. I get it at Blacktacular asks is Benedict Benedict's early shooting inefficiency, a big deal. So he shot two of 13 from three during preseason. No, I don't think so. Just because we, I mean, not to totally throw it away. Um, but I, I mean, just based on what we saw from him uh, at Arizona over two years, I'm really not too worried about the shot. Uh, it was just a small sample size. And I'm just so encouraged about what he had getting downhill that I'm, I'm not really too worried about it. Other than those two things might go hand in hand a little bit. Well, that's like, fair. I'm, yeah. I'm not concerned. I, I would not use the word concerned or a big deal. I am a little bit surprised that nobody asked us this if, if the team's overall shooting inefficiency was a big deal because basically no one shot the three well during preseason buddy turned it around over the last game and shot well but pretty much no one else did but yeah matherin shot two of 13 from three oh of four is the pick and roll ball handler um did not make any out of dho situations made the one in isolation which was encouraging against the knicks because he like threw it in a boomerang pass got it back against isaiah hartenstein backed up and then hit a dribble three that was great to see and then made one in a catch and shoot settings and there was a few times in the catch and shoot settings where i just thought it needed to be a quicker decision like he kind of clutched the ball before he let it go or like you know it was a little bit you know preseason casualness to it so i wasn't concerned about those the pick and roll ball handler ones, you know, Tyrese didn't play in two of these games. So if Tyrese is out there, I don't know how many necessarily of those he's going to get unless it's a secondary pick and roll situation. The only thing that was different about that was his defender ducked under and he still missed him. So like, it's good that he immediately let it go, but those types of situations, like, yeah, you're curling the pin downs, but like what I said before, they're not going to keep guarding you to let you curl that if you're getting downhill to this degree. So you are going to have to, like, for instance, Tari was guarding him on the one stagger. Tari went over the first screen, ducked under the second to beat him to his spot. Then his handle got dicey and he lost it a little bit. Like, you're going to need to be able to stop behind that pin down and make a shot. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're going to be, you know, cutting the corner pretty big there. So 
again, not a big deal, but it will be something to monitor because it will make it a little bit harder for him to attack in spaces if he's not making shots. But that's something to consider a long ways from now. Um, Cubby Wilson at Arcadia Historia says, it's clear, this is a funny one, it's clear that Benedict Mathern has that dog in him. How important is inner dog and projecting growth and development moving forward? Uh, Best draft question. That is fantastic. Uh, It is actually really important. Like, especially when you're talking about somebody who is, like, when, you know, when you're talking about somebody developing as a a quote-unquote closer or, or... the top option on a team as a scorer, like, yeah, it's important to have a player who's going to be calling for the ball because like we've talked about with Tyrese, not that again, this is not to say that Tyrese does not have that dog in him. Um, But like if Tyrese had Benedict's uh, shot willingness, that's, that's what I want to see kind of. Um, So, I, I mean, I do think it's important in the right ways. And for like, I mean, cause then we can talk about like, maybe somebody having too much dog like our East in at times last year, <laughs> like, cause that, I mean, that can be an adventure. Um, I, I, I guess know. it depends on what your definition of that dog in him is. Yeah. Because like, I don't really completely know how to define that. Like he is a super competitive unafraid player when he's on the basketball court for sure. And if we think back to that story that I think Rick Carlisle told during the pre-draft process where like he didn't hit um, a specific benchmark in a shooting drill, went back to his hotel in Indy and called them late that night. Like, I want to say that they said he called him at like midnight and was like, please let me come back and do that drill again. I know that I can, you know, do it. And Rick met him at the practice facility and he did like that shows not only his competitiveness, but I think his work ethic as well. It seems very much so that he's a guy who's going to be committed to trying to get better. Um, I think that that certainly matters. And, but I think overall talent would still be my most important thing (laughs) when I'm evaluating growth and development. Like if all other things are equal, then this would be a factor that I'd be like, yeah, I want that guy. Like if they're the same, but it's kind of like when we talk to about like finding guys who love the game, like, yeah, I think you want somebody that's a gym rat and wants to improve, but also there are people who don't like their jobs who are still very good at them. Yeah. So Ultimately, I think that the overall talent markers would still be the same. Because let me ask you this. Does Lance Stevenson have that dog in him? Oh, Jesus. Uh, Yes. Yes, he does. Like, and I'm not trying to get people mad about our Lance takes. But, like, and Lance was fine over the back end of last season. I don't have a problem that he played with the Indiana Pacers. It seems like, you know, he had a lot of good moments. In fact, I enjoyed that I went from going from Brad Wanamaker to Lance Stevenson actually making a pocket pass. Like, hooray. But, like, I'm not just looking for the dog in him as the factor. I'll put it that way. Yes. It would be a factor among many. Um, so that ends segment one about Benedict Matherin. I guess there was one other question that got asked really late last night, and I don't have the person's name written down, but it was just what um, impressed you most or, you know, both sides of the coin. Like, what did you like most about Matherin during preseason? What did you dislike the most? And I think we kind of already touched on that. Yeah, um, no, I think we're good on that. Yeah, I think that, like, the thing that I was probably most, I don't want to say concerned, but like the biggest question mark is definitely his screen navigation to this point in time. But that applies to other people on the roster as well. But okay, so segment two, the other young guys, we have lots of questions about some of the other players on the roster. So Craig Lindemann, longtime listener of the podcast at CL in Pursuit. If you could only keep one of Terry Taylor and o- O'Shea Brissett, who stays oh. and who goes? I go. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, Oh, that's tough, man. 
Where do you go on this one? My answer would be Terry. Um, yeah. I felt like, I mean, I, clearly with Neesmith out, they ended up playing O'Shea at the three. Maybe they see O'Shea as more of a three. Um, I felt like that spot was going to be between the two of them. And again, we didn't yeah. see what happened at training camp. But like, and then they did play O'Shea in the closing lineup with the Canadians and Goga when they closed out the Knicks. But um, he seemed a little out of sorts during preseason. And I think that there's something else that I've noticed from him with regards to O'Shea as this resourceful scorer in the way that he is. It feels like he needs to play with Tyrese or Sabonis. Yeah. Like he needs to play with that type of a player out on the floor. His what he does doesn't quite have the same effect. You know, it's like when Tyrese is the jump passer and that freezes the defense and then O'Shea can cut. Like as good as TJ McConnell is, and there are times where TJ finds him as the 45 cutter, like it just doesn't seem to have quite the same impact when he's out there in lineups where there isn't that degree of somebody who can pass him open, so to speak, or is gonna find him. So like Tyrese assisted him more than anybody else last year in only those 26 games. So he assisted him 41 times. And the same was true of Sabonis the prior season. So like, and that's different types of offense. Cause he was cutting around Sabonis in the post a lot with Nate Bjorkren or, you know, weather out of delay and other stuff. And it doesn't seem like it's quite the same impact. Whereas with Terry, you know, he isn't as dependent in that regard. Like he's still very much a system player, but there's just more things right now that he can do. I think. Yeah. Um, I still value both of them a lot, and they do different things, but I just trust Terry Taylor to also defend more types of fours. So if I am playing him at the four, like he at least held up against Julius Randle when he came out and started in place of Jalen Smith at the four. O'Shea Brissett cannot guard somebody like Julius Randle. Like he he his core strength just is not there. So um, they don't all do the same things, but right now at this current moment, I would pick Terry. I wouldn't feel great about it. Like there's still stuff that I like about O'Shea, but I think that O'Shea requires a little bit more of a specific fit. Yeah, no, I think I, I, I'm right there with you. I would, I would pick Terry Taylor with gritted teeth because yeah. I love Terry, but I also, I love O'Shea. It's like asking me to drop one of my sons off a cliff to save the other one. Um, yeah. that is a terrible analogy. Jesus Christ. And in um, part, like, sorry to interrupt you, but like oh, the whole good. Kendall Brown I'm glad thing. You did interrupt me. <laughs> the whole Kendall Brown thing. Um, and the fact that he pretty much played in front of O'Shea in several of those games, which maybe it's yeah. just like trying to get a rookie run who may not be in the rotation. It also doesn't really seem like O'Shea is going to be in the rotation at this point in time unless there's ongoing injuries. But like to an extent, like they have Kendall Brown on this two-way contract. Who knows if they'll end up converting him to a standard, how long he'll be in the Pacer pipeline. But he does do a lot of O'Shea-like things mm-hmm. other than the fact that O'Shea's shot is further along. Like in terms of Kendall Brown being the same type of instinctive cutter and the other thing that he can do is he's very good at, I, I think so far in preseason, of catching the ball on the move and immediately making the right pass in the flow of the offense to the next thing. Yeah. Um. So they might already be looking at it and being like, oh, you know, if we don't end up keeping O'Shea next summer, we already have Kendall Brown. Like they're a little bit more similar than, you know, Kendall Brown to Terry Taylor are quite different, but that's just another tiny aside. No, that's a good point. So the next one, Keith Carroll at Casey tweet, where are you at on Jalen Smith? If he's not a plus defender, I'm not sure what he is or if he makes it as a starter or even in the NBA. I think he must shoot well in practice based on the shots he took in preseason, but I'm not so sure. What do you guys think? No, I mean, I think he kind of hit the nail on the head for me. Uh, like, he's 
I mean, he's going to be the starting power forward uh, by virtue of uh, it being publicly announced that he was going to be. Like, I I mean, that's not really something that you can go back on unless something, like, drastically changes. Um, so, I mean, I think I'm pretty kidding. Like, that's just going to happen. Um, as far as what he actually is, I mean, yeah, he's, he's just in kind of a – I don't, I don't want to be, like – I don't want to say a weird place, but um, – yeah, the shot really has to be there for the rest of his game to iron out and and him to develop into uh what I would call a starting level player. I still like I don't personally view him as being a four, um even if things really hit right. Um like I mean there's just a lot of things that I really want to see continue to improve and I think monitoring his development this year is going to be one of the most important things for the Pacers because like not just that I don't like talking in terms of just like deal valuation, but in finding those guys who are going to be part of the next good Pacers team, like, yeah, you need to find out if that's going to be him in the next two years, because he was a high level draft pick. I think a lot of people can quibble about, you know, whether or not he should have been. Um, but I mean, yeah, that they re-signed him to, to find out. So, yeah. I think for me, he shot 33% from three during preseason. He was four of 10 on spot ups with only one make that wasn't a no dribble jumper. And that goes back to what we said on the last pod and why when we recorded way back, you know, in June or whenever it was the podcast about, you know, Jalen being announced as the starting power forward that it's like when we did the Keegan Murray stock up, stock down thing. And there's a big difference between Keegan and Jalen in their attack at closeouts and that, Keegan doesn't have a bursty first step either. And he's all, he's not all that shifty either. And that's the thing with Jalen. Like you really can't be both of those things. You can't, you can't not be very suave with a Euro step or being able to get around people and also not beat them on your first step. That makes things very difficult for you without picking up a charge call or, you know, which, you know, Evan about Evan Fournier about took Jalen Smith out, but mm-hmm. Keegan also has the ability to, you know, do a Barkley drive and be twisty twirly and back somebody down which allows him to still be able to do something on a closeout. Like Jalen Smith doesn't have that same balance. So I don't really know, like, unless he's on the baseline and can just really quick take like one dribble and get to his floater. Like the one dribble pull-up was like a massive adventure during preseason. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Some of those shots were wild. So unless he can get like the one dribble pull-up or start doing some type of a back down in those situations, I don't know how, bullish i am on that taking a lot of steps forward yeah um we do need to point out that like of the matchups that he could have had the knicks was probably one of the worst matchups for jalen smith and they played him twice um he got dislodged by julius randall on several occasions he helped too far off of julius randall on several occasions and to randall's credit like he just was better at making quick decisions and that didn't really help things either. Mm -hmm. But if we're looking at it, like Terry Taylor came out after halftime defended and started because Jalen had had the injury. And maybe that was part of it against Houston too. I don't know. Maybe he was feeling lingering effects from that, but like Terry Taylor defended Randall better on one possession than Jalen did at any point in time in those two games. So like for me, when I'm looking at it, like, again, like clearly part of retaining him was telling him that he was going to be a starter. Like, I, I don't know how else to interpret that. Other than like what we've been saying with the Miles Miles Turner trade case that like, you know, by comparison to Terry Taylor or Ijax, Jalen is a stretchier type big that would ins- hopefully in- give a better shot at Miles being defended by fives. Otherwise, like if all of those factors aren't here, 
and we're just picking somebody that's going to make, you know, the team make the most sense. If it's about miles getting defended at the five, I might actually start O'Shea, even though you're going to have some issues with the rebounding. And if, if it's everything else, I probably would have just started Isaiah Jackson at the four, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I know that's not what Miles wants because he wants to be more involved as the screener. And, you know, it's going to be – he's not going to get defended by fives in those situations. He's going to be floating around the perimeter a lot more. But, like, you would have Ajax, who's more mobile defensively at the four, to what both of us have said a million times, do more stuff in the Roma role, perhaps protect his foul trouble better playing out there with Miles, and then vice versa, you'd have a better role gravity threat instead of trying to play two stretchy bigs at once, somebody that can play with Tyrese's floater game and – like that's probably what I would have done, but there's a lot more other, you know, confounding factors here. So um, yeah, I wasn't super, I didn't really see anything new from Jalen during preseason. It was somewhat underwhelming, but I do think the matchups were kind of bad. The injury thing did happen and I'll clearly keep an open mind. And I, I hope, I hope with the attacking the closeouts that he proves me wrong. I hope I see something. I'm like, Oh, there's some development there, but I just, I don't know at this point in time where it's going to come from. Yeah. So, so we can move on to the next one, which is Matt, a, at J dot Matt, if Jackson can improve his three ball, does he have the ability to play the small forward in a lineup similar to what the Cavs did last year? Ooh. Um, I don't mean to shoot this down, but I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, yeah. You just don't think the three ball is going to improve. It does not seem to be something that the team is exactly prioritizing. So I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, and what's funny is they talked about it quite a bit. He talked yeah. about it. Rick talked about it and, you know, he only took a couple during preseason. I think that my thing to begin with, and I'll let you speak to this, but you know, the phrase similar to the Cavs last year, when I watched the Cavs in times when they played, you know, Markinen and Jared Allen and Evan Mobley together, I don't think that, and I could be wrong, but I don't think the reason they were playing three, seven footers together was so much, Hey, we've seen all the other forms of basketball and being huge is the way let's do this as much as, Hey, we need shooting on the floor and we need a movement shooter on the floor. And it just so happens that the guy on our roster who's available to do that is seven foot tall. So we're going to have to find unique and creative ways to play these three guys together. And maybe that's us playing three, two zone with Evan Mobley being a freak and being at the top of it. And that kind of protects Laurie Markinen in some of these situations. Like I don't necessarily think that the Cavs set out thinking, Let's get weird because we think that this is a market inefficiency in the NBA. Like, how do you, how did you interpret that watching the Cavs last year? Yeah, I think if, I mean, ideally, if things had um, worked differently with uh, with Isaac Okoro, I think that they would have had him starting um, like down the stretch. Oh, hold on a second. I'm trying to remember because I know he started for parts of the year, but. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm like, just talking about the minutes when they were all three out there. I think it was just like, we need shooting. Yeah, it was Markin more so like, I mean, they were able to, I mean, I, also that was bad on my end. Isaac started the two most of last year, so that was wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, they they had to play Lowry Marketing. And the same thing with like Dean Wade. It was like, okay, well, we need pl- players who can shoot. And I think credit to their coaching staff for yeah. being able to make it work for large parts. But I also think like, no, like, I mean, part of the reason they traded for Karras was because of some of their inefficiencies and struggles with ball handling and, you know, kind of lacking that. So I, I, I mean, I think that there's room for, uh, for having like some, uh, I mean, it just, it's hard to have like three big players out there at the same time. And I think that just with where Ajax is at right now on both ends, I think it's really hard to see me play 
to see him playing the three at all. Yeah, I mean, I think I would look at it a little bit differently. I actually brought this up somewhat in jest when I was talking with Dan Favalli a couple weeks ago because he was like, what's a weird lineup that you would put out there? And I was like, I don't know. I go, because he brought up four guards. I'm like, oh, well, they'll absolutely do that. Just like, you know, they did it against the Rockets. I'm like, they'll they'll go super tiny just with Miles at the five. Like, that will be a regular thing. Like, I guess a super weird one would be playing Jalen and Ijax and Miles at the same time. Because, like, it's like what we talked about the last time. Like, when you're looking at giant teams like Orlando, like, unless you're just completely going to go tiny and just hope that you can live on three-point variance, which what we saw in preseason, if they shoot the ball like they did in preseason, that isn't happening. But you're going to have to upside to try to keep some of those teams out of the paint. So like, even if Ijax improved as a shooter, which I'm with you, I don't know how bullish I am on that. He would still be the five in that scenario. Like, I don't think that like, and I don't even think Rick's going to do this, but like, if we're looking at the Cavs situation, we're like, Oh yeah, let's play Jalen Smith and Isaiah Jackson and miles. Well, they'll always have a secondary rim protector backing them up. If one of them gets called into a switch or whatever, whatever defensive scheme you're going to use. And that will give them more size to try to wall off the paint. Um, Ijax would be the five. Like he has yeah. the most row gravity of the bunch. I still don't love it because your advantage is just going to be, you know, I don't know that those three are going to really keep you off the glass. Like I'm just trying to think numbers wise, what you would necessarily be gaining aside from the length. Like, cause you have like clear advantages when you play Evan Mobley and Jarrett Allen together. I don't know that this three some would have quite that same effect. You'd rack up blocks and steals, I think for sure. But um, yeah, I think Ijax would play the five miles would play the four and then you would be having to play Jalen at the three, which, you know, what we just said in the prior section, I don't know about, but yeah, I yeah. think that we're probably both out on Isaiah Jackson at small forward at the current point in time. Yeah. Um, James Hines at J month, the boards, I think, it, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what his handle actually is supposed to say. I'll just call it James Hines. Um, who takes the biggest step forward this season between Chris Duarte and Isaiah Jackson? Ooh, that's a good question. I like this question. I like this question too. Uh, I kind of want to say it's going to be Chris. Um, but I want to flip this to you and ask, what's which player is it more important for them to take the step for the team? Isaiah Jackson. Yeah, I agree. Um, right now, the answer is Chris. Like, if we're just looking at the preseason games and, you know, disregarding the numbers to a degree, Chris has looked more in terms of looking different, air quotes, than what has been the case for Isaiah Jackson. Yeah. Like, Chris's rim finishing looks somewhat better. He had scoop shots. He had some finger rolls. He had a little bit better pacing, bobbing and weaving on secondary pick and rolls. I think he finished 12 of 15 in the restricted area, which is a pretty big improvement over last year. Obviously, very tiny sample size. But I think the way that I look at this, like if we're looking at who's going to take the biggest step, Isaiah Jackson has more steps on his ladder to go. Yeah. Like he has further room. And despite the log jam of the millions of centers that they currently have on the roster, he has a little bit less competition to grow and take those steps, I think. Because they're not going to play Daniel Tice or Goga Batadze over him. It's a chance that Miles gets moved midseason. So, you know what will they let Isaiah, Isaiah Jackson do? Like, does he improve his defensive recognition at the five? Um, can he do anything else besides play finishing? I think that on the play finishing front, there might be a little bit of room for that. I mean, we did see him do one of the 
like I wrote in my article, I'm not super high on his ability to grab and go directly off the glass. But in that last game, when I made the joke about his jump pass, he did get a steal and grab and go as the event creator, which I think he can probably do in some fast break situations. Um, I do think that there's ways that they could toy with him in the half court to see if he can do, you know, a one or a two dribble moves in ways that wouldn't necessarily be outside of his capabilities. Like they did, I was surprised they did run a few things with him in the high post with split cutting around him. And like, you know, the idea that you could connect those split cuts to potentially an inverted ball screen from the corner, see if he can put the ball down on the floor once and get to the rim because he is so athletic. Mm-hmm. Um, that type of stuff. Like, I just think that he has more room to go necessarily than what Chris does. But right now I do think that Chris has shown a little bit more improvement than Isaiah Jackson has. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I concur on that. So Russell Jackson at Russell tab, Ijax as an undersized non-shooting center. Do you project him as a future starting center when the Pacers are next competitive? At present, no. Well, project him as the projected. Well, yeah, I mean, even at at present, I don't know if I project him to that. Um, I, I mean, if I'm being optimistic, maybe, but I, I maybe I'm being too pessimistic. I was talking about this with Sam Vecini last week, and I, I probably just in overall. I don't know. I I still just really, I was really excited about what they were doing with him in uh in letting him try things in the G League. And I, I not again, not that I thought he was going to become like this crazy stretch four who has like playmaking flashes. But I mean, if, when you see some of that stuff, it's like I want to see that get tapped into and and develop more, um, or at least trying to develop it out. And it just doesn't feel like that's happening. Um, so. You didn't feel like they did that for the first two games of summer league? No, I felt like they did that, but I mean, just more so like, I, I, I don't know. Like, cause like in the G league, I don't necessarily think that they were giving him those reps. They were just running delay and he was just being willing to take the shot. Like yeah. the game that he made the five threes, he was just catching the ball up at the top of the key. And sometimes it was even, you know, after a while of him standing there thinking about to take the three and then he would do it. Um, I feel like in summer league, especially in the first two that they were giving him reps in different spots, they were, you know, can he turn the ball downhill out of a DHO? They were giving him some tries to bring the ball up the court um, to let him try to take, you know, the King center off the dribble from the top of the key. It just didn't end very well by the last game against Detroit. He was more doing some of the typical Isaiah Jackson play finishing stuff, which I mean, is really if he can do that at a very high level, that's probably what's most important to Tyrese anyways. Um, I just think that my answer to this is no. Like, I don't think that I nor the Pacers project him as the future starter center when they're competitive again. Otherwise, they wouldn't have signed eight into a max offer sheet. Yeah. No, if they really cool. felt that, they wouldn't have thrown that much money. Like, why would you commit that much money to that position if you thought you had somebody currently in your pipeline that was going to be able to do that? Um, now if they do move miles midseason and they start starting him with Jalen and we see that group and maybe he takes some step forwards, maybe I'll change my opinion, but it's like, I've said many times, I think that this guy hits the nail on the head, Russell, when you say that he's an undersized non-shooting center right now, he's more of a five who is small than a small ball five. His weaknesses are more that of a traditional center in terms of his ability to change directions on the perimeter, make shots. Like that's what you think of when you think of a small ball five and somebody who's also potentially switchy on the other end. 
right now he just does more traditional center stuff and he's undersized. So um, he would have to grow out parts of his game for me to think that he would be the starting five the next time the Pacers are, you know, a contending level team. But I do think it's valuable to have somebody like him that can give you, you know, a different option off the bench. And part, like when you look at Phoenix's trip through the playoffs last year, like they didn't necessarily have somebody who could give them a different look at the five spot when Aiton was on the bench or that they could run different lineups with. So um, that was in part two, why if they would have had Aiton, it would have been nice to be like, oh, you know, you can defend with Aiton in this one way and then Ajax can come in and potentially give you another option depending upon what type of opponent you play. But um, that's mainly what I see there with him. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason S. at Math Rocks MRS. This is with regard... Sorry. Um, he is referencing my piece on Andrew Nemhard from the weekend. He says, I like his confidence. By the end of the year, do you think Nemhard will take the backup point guard position away from TJ McConnell? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, do you think TJ McConnell is still on this team after the trade deadline? I'm thinking probably yes. Yeah. Um, I don't think that Nemhard will take that spot from him this year. And the only way it will is if they got like some great offer for TJ and felt like they were, you know, were ready. Yeah. Um, because Rick, when asked at media day about this, I, I don't, I think Tom might've even asked a question and, and Carlisle was very strong about TJ McConnell's going to play this season. Um, so I would be surprised if Nemhard bumped him from the rotation that said, um, I certainly will not be surprised if by the duration of T before the duration of TJ McConnell's contract that he signed last year, if Nemhart is the backup point guard, yeah. if TJ is on another team and Andrew's playing there. Um, and there were also moments where they were willing to play Andrew with TJ or with Tyrese Halliburton. Um, I, I, there wasn't a huge sample of those minutes, but that might be another way that Andrew might still get, get playing time where we could see, you know, how ready is he? Um, I think that he makes some really impressive passes almost from a standstill because he is so patient. Mm-hmm. Um, the shot was all over the place. I mean, that's not to say like, obviously TJ's shot is TJ's shot though. He has made some threes in preseason, but like Andrew was like at one minute, like getting pure swishes in the next minute, like just hitting entire backboard in certain circumstances. So that's going to be definitely something to watch, but when I wrote that piece, like it, it's very, it's, I, I like players who are quirky and do things a little bit differently and, and watching the Knicks weak him to his left. And the fact that like, he's definitely stronger making whip passes with his left than he is with his right. He naturally wants to bring the ball up the floor, even when he's on the right side of the floor with his left, the Pacers are running so much of the action for him to get to his left hand. And this isn't to say that he never gets a screen on his right, but he's also very good. Kind of like what I said with Matherin earlier, like he's very good at screen rejection and not in the same way as Karis. Like we complained at times, or at least I complained at times because I feel like Karis wasn't always rejecting screens in ways that were favorable for the Pacers. Like it would prevent them from being able to connect to the next action because he would want to go away from it or he would catch and hold. And then he would go away from it. Like Andrew's doing it quickly when the big's approaching or he's doing it in a way that gets his defender to move and shift toward the screen and then attack that gap. And he does have really good feel for seeing not only the defender in front of him, but also the tertiary players. He's not the same level of Tyrese in terms of shifting pieces, but his passing feel is quite good in a way that like Karras is more seeing what his defender's doing and what the big's doing. He doesn't always see the second 
line of coverage and what the help defenders are doing. But um, that was another thing that I really liked about him. Um, Jason actually asked three questions here. Um, what about Neesmith? He looked exciting with good defense. According to what Jason wrote. I'm not saying that. That's what Jason said. Uh, I, I'm not super encouraged by Aaron Neesmith. Um, I, I mean, I didn't really think that preseason was awesome from him. Um, summer league was, I mean, it was better than summer league, but again, that's low bar. Um, I mean, I think that there are things that he does that could be interesting, but I still just don't like him taking the ball off the dribble is, um, an adventure. Uh, and he still hasn't shot the ball particularly great for his career or with the Pacers. Um, I, I don't know. I'm like, I, I feel like I need to see a lot from him to, to be really too encouraged about what this year is going to be for him. I mean, he's in the same mold as, uh, Jalen Smith and that both of them and tracking the ways that they attack closeouts, I think is going to be pretty critical. Um, That's a pretty dicey area for Aaron because he doesn't want to use his left hand. And when he does have to use his left hand, it gets very messy in terms of his ability to read the help defender when they come over. Um, His shot selection isn't great. Some of those need to be passes, but because his left hand is what it is, he can't keep his eyes up. He looks down kind of similar to his old teammate, Jalen Brown. And what we saw in some of the playoff situations that it's like, okay, like the Warriors are already forcing you left. And now because your handle is as shaky as it is, you're not keeping your eyes up and you can't see where the passing lanes are. Um, That in part is why like the very first shot that he made and why I wrote about it in my preseason articles, because they were running off ball screens for him to go to his left, which like in Doug McDermott speak, like when Doug McDermott played for the Pacers, almost like 80% of his offense came with him starting the game in the right or the play in the right corner so that he could fly off those screens and put the ball on the floor with his right, especially in the Bjorken season, because Bjorken was really good at running those double staggers that allowed Doug to get that head of steam through like four picks. Um, Neesmith is similar in that like 70% of his offense came, or not his overall offense, but his offense off screens came from the right corner. So the very first play that Aaron was in, they ran it for him to come off the left. And the one thing that I like about that is, is like you're putting your defender in the position to be trailing right away. Like it's not him attacking a closeout and having to, you know, get past his defender or potentially create with his left hand. But when he came off of it, like he made turning the corner more difficult because he took a dribble with his right to get into his floater. Like that's fairly telling. Like if you're coming off screens and you're not dribbling with your outside hand, like he made it more awkward and then he made the floater, which is a good thing because like in Boston, a lot of times when he would go to the left, he'd go to the opposite side of the lane, use a ball fake and then get to a stride step to turn back to get to his right, which is a fine move. Um, I think he did improve at it a little bit, but like the longer you do that, defenses are going to be like, oh yeah, he doesn't finish that way. We're going to sit on that and we're not going to bite on the ball fake. And plus it's just a more difficult shot going right into a, into a floater is a lot easier than having to stop on a dime turn and then hit a step back fade away in the lane. So that's kind of where I'm at with Aaron Eastmith. I do think that his defense looked pretty good. I think that he can get into crash mode and be over aggressive with the fouling finishing plays mm-hmm. at times, but I think he's their best wing defender that they have right now. And that's not a high bar because they basically don't have any wings, but um, I, I, I do like what he does there. And I like what he does in transition too as a defender. Then third part question from Jason, Batadze, can he finally make threes? So Goga made three of four from three. I mean, like, I mean, I I, I suppose he can make threes, but I I mean, he, I just don't even play much this year. I'm going to say something that's that 
people are not going to like it. Yeah. Um, did Goga outplay Jalen Smith during preseason? Ooh. <laughs> uh, he might have. I think he kind of did. Um, I, that's not to say that Goga should be part of your rotation. You're clearly not playing Goga at the four, but like just his ability. Cause when we were talking about the handoffs, I like kind of left Goga out of the mix. Like Goga is not a good screener, but he does have good technique when he's running handoffs, especially if you have to come back and mm-hmm. get the ball. That's like the one area where he will make contact is running handoff plays. So in terms of them doing flow game and getting the next thing. And then the thing that stood out for me is like, Look, he shot four of seven from three in a preseason game against the Cavs last year. And then he shot 28% from deep for the season. So, like, I'm not going to look at it and be like, oh, Goga shot three of four from three. Clearly, you know, he's fixed his shot. But because he also was like three of 12 or 15 with the Georgian national team when I watched him in Eurobasket. Like, he wasn't making threes over there. And the depth of the line is deeper, but that's beside the point. But last year when he shot out of the pick and pop threes, he shot 38%. When he shot spot-up threes, he shot 21%. So he does shoot better out of the pick-and-pop, and he did do some encouraging things with Andrew Nemhard, particularly at the end of that closing game when he was in the closing lineup against the Knicks playing pick-and-pop against Hartenstein. So, you know, maybe if he can do a little bit more in that type of situation, which that's kind of the reverse from what the book was on him headed into pre-draft because, like, he didn't do a lot of that with Mega. Like his pick and pop shooting wasn't really there, but since with the Pacers, he's shot better in those situations than he has just catching it. Um, it feels like he adjusts his, like he has trouble readjusting the speed of his release against closeouts certain times when he's in spot up situations. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't really think Goga is probably going to play. He's clearly going to be behind Ajax and he's not going to play the four against Jalen. But I compared to where I was on him at the end of last year, I actually thought he had some decent moments in preseason. So there's yeah. that. I really hope things work out for him somehow. Um, it doesn't seem like he's going to be in Indiana, but just hoping for the best because I always want to see people succeed. So. I do think that the way that things that they were doing defensively makes it easier to keep him on the floor than what was the case at the back end of last season. I'll say yeah. that. Um, segment three, that's the end of the young guys section. And it was pretty cool because everybody asked, those were all questions that people asked. And I think we covered almost everybody. But segment three, state of the tank and trade corners, what I've titled this. Flamescar, Gun Bad, or at Cool Guy Zone asks, I could definitely tell last year was at least a partial tank. What should the tanking policy be going into this season? And what do you think they actually end up doing? And is that different from what they ought to do? All right. So here, I feel like we always get some questions approached like this. And I don't, and this is not me trying to dunk on the dude. I think this is a very fair and viable question. But just in general, I think to dispel what a tank is slash isn't like this team is coming out and trying to be competitive this year. I think that's important to note while also noting that they just are not good. Like I think pretty easily, this is the worst team in the NBA. Like I, I, at least defense, like the defense is going to be abhorrent for most of the year. Um, just based on personnel. Uh, I think that the offense is going to be an adventure to, um, unless some crazy Tyrese heavy lifting happens that we don't expect, like this team is going to be bad again, important to note, like this is not process level tanking. Like this is not like that, like that we're not playing rookie Jeremy Grant, 24 minutes a game. Um, You know, Tony Groton is not out here and I shout out Tony Groton. I love Tony Groton, but point being like, I think that there's a big difference between, quote unquote tanking and just being a bad team. Like I do think like this is kind of 
mask tanking, whatever you want to call it. But it's not like they're coming out here with the intention of losing every game. I think that's just going to be a, a byproduct of what they're doing. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think that's what they were doing at the end of last year. Yeah, exactly. like, I did find it curious that Malcolm Brogdon like had a comment on that Sirius XM radio thing where he was like, yeah, some of me being out last year was injury and some of it was like basically organizational goals. Like they were trying to lose essentially. And I mean, they had made comments that like miles probably could have come back by the end of the season, but what was necessarily the point when there was the back to back. And I understand all that. I get it, but they were also playing Tyrese and buddy. Like it wasn't like they shut down Tyrese. Like OKC does with Shea Gilgis every year. Like, and you know, Shea did have injuries, but you see my point. Yeah. Um, They were still playing them and even playing them big minutes. And that in part is what colored some of my vision of what the team was headed into the summer and why I thought they needed to move off of some of the veterans. Cause I'm like, this team just isn't good enough. Like if you're playing Detroit and you're playing your starters at the end of a game and Detroit's playing, you know, Carson Edwards, who just flew into town that day and four other guys who are from the end of their bench while Sadiq Bay and Isaiah Stewart and Cade Cunningham and you know, everybody else is, is watching from the sideline for the entire fourth quarter and you're full court pressing and you still can't get it done. Like that leads me to believe that you're further away than what you think you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't, I'm not going to say that there's going to be like tons of tanking shenanigans or something, but they are saying that they're going to play 10 deep and be playing more guys, which I do think is good for development. But if you're not playing Tyrese 40 minutes, like, you know, you're not going to be squeezing out every ounce of winning. And in that regard, like, for instance, if he came out, which it sounds like his back is a very minor thing, but like, if it, if it was something that was going to linger, I would be pretty judicious with that in this type of a season. Like I'd be like, okay, we're not going to risk you having some type of injury. So if you have to sit, you have to sit, you know, yeah. type of a situation. Um, I guess when, when he asks, what do you think they actually end up doing? And is that different from what they ought to do? Like my overall policy on the season. And I think you share it with me is that they, my hope is that they're competitive losing. I mean, yeah. for me to have a different opinion on that, like, I would need to just see major step forward for guys on the roster to alter that approach. Um, if Tyrese firmly looks like an all-star, if Matherin is like right in the rookie of the year situation for most of the year, you know, maybe there's value to you squeaking into a play in tournament somehow and potentially gaining that experience. But I just mainly don't think they should shortchange this rebuilding situation. Um, and the miles situation is what the miles situation is. Um, my crystal ball, if I had to look into it, would be that Miles and Buddy start the season very well and that something changes with another team like what did with James Harden when they got to move Oladipo and that that would come quickly. But when he's asking what will they end up doing, one quote that stood out a lot from that athletic article about the Russell Westbrook situation, which our friends at the Strickland were nice enough to highlight and send to me, quotes, Pacer owner Herb Simon showed increasing interest as the summer went on and having new lead guard Tyrese Halliburton, Turner, and Heald start the season together. From all accounts, it sounds like the Pacers were open to getting the deal done. Like, that's me editorializing. Like, when you read the report, it sounded like if the Lakers would have made two picks, both picks available, like maybe without protections, that maybe that trade already would have happened. But the fact that Herb Simon wanted to bring them back and see those guys play, like, I feel like there was there was progress made on the Herb Simon front with certain things last year. So my only thing in kind of answering this question would be like, if they would somehow start out better than what people are anticipating and have a decent record, I wouldn't want them to be like 
you know, in a reprise of at a far lesser level, the 17-18 season being like, let's keep this magic season rolling and let's not trade these guys and see what they can do in a play-in tournament. And then they get beat in the first play-in game. And it's like, okay, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what what, what is the long-term pup? purpose of that versus getting what potential assets you might be able to get moving them especially if miles isn't going to sign an extension like that's that's what view i see and it sounds like that's kind of where they're at as well like i won't speak to the trade front but when they were talking at media day and at the golf outing and other stuff like kevin pritchard said they're thinking in three and four year increments wherein before with the prior group they were looking at one and two year increments about you know how can we kind of this is my word not his but like keep band-aiding this group with other, you know, potential role players who might take them, you know, a little bit further that they don't want to just be a tough out anymore, that they want to think bigger than that and that they know it's going to take time. So my hope is that they keep to that. And that's how they approach the season is what I will say. I agree. So another question, this one, I'm kind of rephrasing because I don't know that I completely understand it, but Michael Warsauer at MJ Warsauer asks outside of buddy and miles, who has the highest trade value in this tank season? Which, I mean, Buddy and Miles clearly do not have the highest trade value. (laughs) Otherwise, they would already be traded, most likely. But I will turn that into perhaps most likely to be traded in this tank season, outside of Miles and Buddy. Like, let's look at it from that angle. Ooh, most likely to be traded outside of Miles and Buddy? Yeah. Let me pull up the roster so I can think about it. Um, because I mean, trade value, if that's the way we're looking at it, the person with the highest trade value is Tyrese. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, but but I'm looking at it from likelihood, that's Um, a little bit more uh, interesting to me. Likelihood, I don't, I mean, Chris. I don't, I don't know that Chris is – I don't want to say that it's likely he's going to get traded, but I do feel like there is a little bit of a um, – not that uh, – do, do you get what I'm getting at? No, I get what you get at, you're getting at because that was going to be part of my answer. My answer is Daniel Tice. I think he's well, the yeah. most likely to be traded um, Every, outside of Buddy and Miles. I mean, he didn't he didn't play. I, I know that he was in Eurobasket, but Gogo was in Eurobasket too, and Gogo played um, not as long. Germany made it to the middle rounds, but um, – it sounds like he might be out at the beginning of the season too. Like if he's just not going to play, then I, I think that they're probably going to try to find somewhere to move him. So mm-hmm. I think he would be the most likely, but I don't think this is particularly likely, but if the season goes on and it doesn't seem feasible to start Chris Duarte with Tyrese and Benedict Matherin, like let's say they were to move buddy, like, I don't know, they move buddy and it's like, let's start Tyrese and Chris and Matherin and they get a look at that. And it's like, okay, we just have no way to defend wings with this group out on the floor. This isn't realistic. Our offense isn't outweighing it. Like, even if we make other tweaks, we don't think that that group of three people can play together. Um, then I think you have to look at it because he's on a rookie scale, scale deal right now. And I think that other contenders would see Chris as somebody that they could bring in off the bench and provide them potentially with shooting, maybe some defense. And he's 25 years old. So, like, I have to think his value would be pretty decent in a trade when he's still on his rookie contract, and that would probably be my answer. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I certainly want to see him play with Benedict and Tyrese before I make any of those types of determinations, but, yeah. Um, but probably Daniel Tice or Goga is probably most likely. Um, but I think the Chris situation is one that's interesting to monitor. Yes, I concur greatly with that. 
Okay, Danny K at Day Kurt, D, at D Kirsch. If Hallie and Matherin have most improved player and rookie of the year type seasons, will the team defense particularly still be bad enough for the Pacers to get a bottom five seed? I think so. Um, unless like Matherin is like, you know, God tier rookie season. Um, not to say that he'll have a bad year, but like, you know, if if he like really takes some some massive leap and becomes uh you know, like a, a much higher end player in, in year one than we expect, or, or Tyrese really leans into and, and quote unquote gets that dog in him this year. Um, even then, like, I think this, the surrounding talent and just what this team is right now is going to be bad enough that they're, I don't think that, unless like if Miles takes again, like the, we're, the mental math you have to do to like even project this. Yeah. Out. Like exactly. if Miles takes like some, massive leap or something uh then like maybe they're a 32 win team but that's oh, like no. everything oh, no. happens right like I don't, that's well saying right it's fair but like yeah like i no, will say I, this i will say this when you watch the indiana pacers play that charlotte hornets team in preseason and i don't think that the hornets were bringing the same degree of energy as the pacers it was hard for like headed into the preseason and like when I did preview pods, I didn't think it was outside the realm of the possibility that the Pacers could, you know, maybe be plucky or be just flat out the worst team in the Eastern Conference. After I saw them play the Hornets, I was like, that Hornets team, man, I don't know if a team has ever gone from having immaculate vibes to toxic vibes quicker than the Charlotte Hornets over the last two years. But um Yeah. It's... I, I'm not. I'm not feeling the the Hornet energy. Um, I, Danny did add on to this, hoping for Miles and Buddy trade, so we don't shortchange the tank rebuild, preferred development, and getting more top draft talent. Um, yes, I mainly agree with that, Danny K. Um, if they trade Miles, the defense will definitely be bad enough to get a bottom five seed. Um, without a doubt, it will be. Yeah, I think that. The other piece of this is almost, this is going to sound, I'm going to reverse engineer this question a bit. If Tyrese Halliburton is having a most improved player level caliber season and Matherin is firmly in the rookie of the year conversation, Tyrese looks like an all-star. There's a chance that might make me more convinced that they need to go for the top draft talent. Yeah. Because then I would be more convinced that they could have a solid core. And if you add, you know, Wemby or, you know, whoever else you're getting at the top of that draft, like I might be even more enticed at that point in time. No, I think that's a good point. Like I might be even more enticed to move Miles and Buddy in that situation than the reverse, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, or equally so. I don't know. I don't know what would have to have to happen for me to change my mind on that. We're, we're kind of going to get to that, though, because a lot of these questions are going to continue on this same line of thought. So W, W forever, asks, will Turner finally be able to fit in and flourish with this offense and defense? Will he resign, or are we just waiting for the trade announcement? Uh, No, he's not going to resign. Uh, I think we're just waiting for the trade announcement. I think he's just waiting for the trade announcement. Um, I think the team's just waiting for the right trade to come along. Um, like I, I mean, it's yeah, no, I don't, I don't think that's happening this year. So we basically touched on this exact question on the last pod. Yeah. Um, if people listen to that, but I will say that just to paraphrase quickly, like given the way that both sides react to questions about extension talks during media day 
and that both of them said no comment. And I get that you're not going to comment on specific dollars and cents and negotiations that may or may not be happening. But there was none like, hey, if that works out, we really want to keep Miles here. And from Miles's perspective, it wasn't like, hey, I'm not going to talk about the dollars and cents, but I really enjoy being in Indiana. And if I can stay here long term, I would want to. Like there are cases where players will say that, that they they like their current situation. Neither side really elaborated on that. And when Kevin Pritchard was like, you know, Miles is excited. He wants to play solo five. He wants to play with Tyrese. He wants to be a defensive monster this year, but he's going to be a free agent. Like you saying, but he's going to be a free agent does not lead me to believe that you're confident that you're, that you're signing him to an extension. So unless there's change on that front, like the rest of it just doesn't matter as much to me. Um, I don't think playing it at the five solves everything for him. Um, he did a few nice things in the Houston game, but he almost every game, and this isn't me just trying to like, because I will say things defensively about him later, but like, he just does things that just make me say, why? Like, why is that the decision you're making? So like they're playing the Knicks and he gets a closeout from Jalen Brunson on a switch. And instead of shooting it, he tries to put the ball on the floor and like beat a guard off the dribble like dangerously like I, I, when you have like a six foot what is he like what is Jalen Brunson six two six yeah six, I, I don't two know on a good day yeah like just shoot the ball when he's closing out to you like or you know him getting pushed clear off the block by Jalen Green in the preseason game like it took him a little while he recognized it and then he like Jalen Green I think did end up fouling him but I mean he was several feet off the block it's it's those types of things that and that goes back to last season where this just the decision making with him just really makes me scratch my head sometimes he did do a couple things throughout like I said on the prior pod like turning over his one shoulder and turning back to the other making some shots in the lane that I'm like hey that's something um he caught it in the lane and and took one dribble like almost like it wasn't a keeper play but but somewhat similar flashing into the paint against Houston I'm like oh all right but, you know, I'm not really going to be here for the return of the Darren Collison, Miles, mid-range, pick-and-pop, abort-the-roll type stuff. Like, I'd have to see progress, especially with him on the roll, man, for me to think that, like, yeah, this is what's best for Tyrese Halliburton if you're considering Tyrese your franchise player. I'm just not sure that I think that the fit is necessarily going to be there. But Miles didn't play since January of last year. I don't know where his head was at necessarily in preseason in terms of how hard he wanted to push coming back from that injury right away when he's been off for that long. Cause he did say that he didn't do a lot of basketball stuff this summer. It was more just about him getting healthy. So I want to be respectful of all that defensively. Like you can fit miles into most things that you want to do defensively, unless you're like wanting to just be a fully five team switch out team. Like I want to feel good about that, but most other things he can do to some degree of a level. So I don't have concern there, but I think mainly, yeah, you're just waiting for the trade announcement. It just feels very temporary to me. Unless like we're sitting here and all of a sudden we get a Woj notification that says that both sides agreed to some cost-effective extension. Like I, I just don't see that happening long-term, but um, are there any players you are pretty sure get moved this season by the deadline? That's Justin Russett, which we kind of answered. Like, I guess I'll just go back to Daniel Tice. I'd be very surprised if he's still on the roster. And I'm to the point where for the first time, it feels like every year since like before the Bjorken season that the two of us, you've like, we've done our like one series pods and the over under is always like 0.5 games that miles will play with the Pacers. And I always take the over. Cause I think that trades are far less likely to happen than to happen. But this is the first time where I would just be very surprised if he was still on the team by the end of the season. Yeah. Um, um Yeah. Yeah. Like, and then another person, Nick Molov, just to address it. He was like, do you think Turner gets moved at all this year? Um, so we've kind of answered that. 
So then we go to King Cronin, Cronin J. Thomas. Any scenario in which the Pacers don't trade Buddy Heald? I'm higher on the Pacers than most and think they're in the Knicks-Bulls 9-10 seed play-in level. Whoa. But I'm not sure if they're playing 500 ball over the first month, if that makes them more or less likely to move them. So I, let's just tackle the first part. This, this is a good question. Is there any scenario in which you think that the Pacers would not trade them? I, I think Miles is just kind of like, I I mean, maybe if Miles gets injured again, which I don't want to imagine that happening. I really don't. No, hope that no I don't either. Um, I do think it's possible that they keep Buddy, though. Um, I'm not uh saying if it's right or wrong is the wrong way to put it but like i think he does things that are viable um and helpful for developing young players like having just having somebody who is a really good shooter who can move without the ball um and who can run some things on ball is like i mean that's it's a useful player to have around without necessarily completely uh blowing up your ability to to be bad um like i think one of my issues that i have with not to like just like go on a giant tangent but like one of my issues that i have at times with okc and uh like houston and how some other teams have gone about their rebuilds is like i think that you have to have veterans in place who are not just like quote-unquote locker room guys but guys who are able to um help facilitate on-ball growth and like actually be creating good habits when you're on the court because I just like especially with OKC like with what their shooting was last year was abhorrent like I just question what some of the process ends up being on the court and I think having a player like Buddy who was able to just help facilitate like good things happening offensively like I, I think that's valuable yeah I mean I think that the only scenario in which the Pacers wouldn't trade Miles is if they, like I just said on the prior question, is if he signs an extension midseason. Like, if if that's the only thing that would stop me from trading him, because I'm not going to chance that. Like, if he's playing, because, like, look at it from the opposite perspective. Like, when we answered that other question, if he fits and flourishes offensively this year and he's playing better, you're not going to chance getting past the trade deadline and him meeting with other teams next summer unless he's given you a very firm commitment that he plans on staying. Like in this case, it really just comes down to the contract for me with regards to him. Um, hopefully, like going back to the Herb Simon quote from the athletic article, like, again, if they're slightly over exceeding expectations, I would hope that he wouldn't be like, oh, let's chase that sweet, sweet one game play in tournament cash. Like, you know, <laughs> instead of looking for the longer view, which by all accounts, it sounds like they are all in lockstep front office ownership on what direction and like I said looking in three to four year increments versus the reverse of that because like it is kind of a fun question to look back at the 17-18 season which was very highly entertaining to watch and see that group exceed expectations and obviously they can't erase the injuries that happened to all those players they can't erase what happened to Oladipo or the fact that like every single starter ended up having some degree of a foot injury they were never healthy at the same time but like if you look at that summer like if they don't sign Darren Collison and Boyan Bogdanovich, or even in the eighteen nineteen year when they like still managed to be competitive with Nate McMillan and they got swept by the Boston Celtics in the first round, and as it was reported that like Darren and Corey Joseph and Thad were like and Boyan were like, you know, we've worked this hard, we want to be able to go and play in the playoffs. Like I respect all that, and they clearly want to be like a player first organization to a degree. But like if they don't do those things 
and Oladipo and Sabonis still become Oladipo and Sabonis, did they shortchange what the two of them could have been if they wouldn't have made, you know, kind of those short-sighted moves? Like, yeah, that playoff series against the Cavs when they went seven games was, you know, good. And I see the overall vision of the players that they put around them, even when they went and got TJ Warren and other stuff. But like, what if they would have been really bad that year? Like, what if Victor still takes the steps forward and eventually Sabonis does too when he moves from like makeshift four and OKC to being, you know, fulcrum Sabonis with the Pacers? Like, if they could have put other like drafted talent around them in that window, what would their ceiling have been higher? And I think that that's a question that they should ask themselves now too. Like, if yeah. if they went into the season and somehow they had that seventeen eighteen magic again, which I'm not necessarily anticipating, but let's pretend that it does. Like, do you want to do that to Tyrese and Matherin? Like, I don't think that you do. I think that you would go back and like, again, like I have good memories of Oladipo playing in that Cavs series. Um, He was incredible in that first opening game. That was very fun to watch, but they weren't going to get it. They weren't going to get any further than that. And that's what they need to, in my opinion, let go of. It can't keep being that anymore. So um, Ryan Barnett at Pacers game analysis one. After watching preseason, has your expectations on the year adjusted at all? No. I know. Sorry, that's a very curt answer, but like, no. I, th- I yeah. I, I, I still have the very, the exact same view. Yeah, I think I mainly still have the exact same view. Uh, other than like, definitely encouraging that Matherin looks legit. Yes. I mean, I, I, that 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 changes. It doesn't really change my expectation of him, but he's already exceeded what I thought. Like in terms of what I thought I'd see from him in preseason, I guess I'll put it that way. So that's very encouraging. Like in terms of, again, hearkening back to what Kevin Pritchard said, do we have a core? I don't know. Maybe we're getting closer. When you see Mather and do stuff like that, you seem like you're getting closer. So um, that's something. But yeah, that's kind of short answers from both of us, but that's how I feel. Elliot Beaver, longtime listener of the pod at Beaver Elliot, which team would you like the Pacers to mimic the most in their rebuild with with the pieces they currently have in place? Ooh. I think I want to I want to twist this direction and say I don't want them to mimic another team. Find yeah. your own way to win, um, because I think the teams that try and mimic everyone else are the ones that end up falling behind. Uh, like part of why I really like what Orlando is doing is because it's kind of their own thing. Like we've seen teams that have gone bigger, um, but I think Orlando just is prioritizing length and playmaking ability and shooting uh, all at the same time. And I think like. I don't know what that is for the Pacers. Maybe that's being a three guard lineup in time or something like that. But uh, I want to see what they view as their own way of winning because they're very adamant about, you know, Indiana is not a free market and free agent destination. And we've, we've talked about how I have, like, even if it's true, I just don't love repetitively saying that all the time. Um, I think it's a very defeatist mentality that just kind of creates like a, it just creates like a bad taste in, in your mouth when you think about Indiana, to be honest, in my opinion. But um, no, I like I, I don't I don't know if I have like a concrete vision of what that's going to be. It, I mean, a lot's just going to depend on what happens with the draft and how they make moves. But I, I don't think I have a quote unquote mimic for them. Yeah, I don't think that I need to mimic play styles. It goes back to the whole thing that it seems that we do every year in the playoffs where it's like, well, that doesn't win in the playoffs. That team just lost. That's not what wins. And then, you know, the whole copycat thing, once one team does win the championship of, well, that's what you have to be. You know, the Lakers just won in the bubble. You have to be big now. Well, you know, even though like the last four teams that have won are nothing alike, 
Like, so it's really about just maximizing who you are and what you can be and finding a market inefficiency that works for you, I think is the way I would look at it. Yes. Um, but I'm not necessarily taking this completely from the play style perspective as much as, and you know, Kevin Pritchard brought up Memphis a couple times um, during his 20 minute availability in terms of just modeling that Memphis is a team that's mostly rebuilt through the draft and making good draft choices. Like it doesn't mean that you're going to play like the Memphis Grizzlies, but taking that view, I I think makes sense. And I agreed with him when he talked about that, that, you know, they were patient. They did end up getting, you know, John Morant, and made other smart choices. And now it does look like they could be a contender for a while or, you know, be highly competitive in the Western conference. Um, segment four, that ends the questions about the state of the tank and trade corner. And now we're just heading into some schematics, general basketball questions. Um, and mostly with regard to the Pacers, but just general basketball, Jake at I am Cohen crazy. Who do you think attempts the most threes for the Pacers this season? And who do you think should? Uh, I think it's going to be Matherin who, who attempts the most threes this season. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Buddy's on the team. Uh, well, okay. But his buddy on the team all year. This is tough. So are we doing per game or total? Does that let's make do sense? per game. Yeah, let's do per game. Per game. I think it's Buddy. Um, and then I want, I want it to be Tyrese. Yeah, that's my pick for who it should be. Um, I, but yeah, I still think it's going to be Buddy. My pick for who it will be is Buddy, and Buddy can take the widest variety of threes out yeah. of anybody that's on the roster right now. Buddy can take threes off movement. He can fly off screens and take threes. He can pull up and take a three. He can sprint and transition and take a three. So that makes it plus like not that he's completely a shooting specialist, but he's not going to do as many of the other things as what the other guys might do. Yeah. Um, Chris still has some hangups as a movement shooter. Chris has not shot the ball well this summer and he hasn't shot the ball well in preseason so far. Um, I don't completely know what's up with that. Matherin, um, you know, didn't shoot the ball particularly well either. And teams went under against him. So he hasn't taken a lot of movement threes with the exception of he's really good at hitting the one when he comes up out of the corner as the shake cutter. He's pretty comfortable with that. Um, but he's, he's curling so many of those shots. So unless defenders start trying to take that away, like, I don't know if I think that he would lead the team in three point attempts necessarily, but who I think should is Tyrese. And here's why, if he, if he were to lead the team in three point attempts per game, like let's, especially if buddy gets moved, that tells me that he's improved at relocation, which he's already decent at, but that he's someone else who is capable of either or that there is someone else, I should say, if Tyrese leads your team in three-point attempts, then that means that one of the other players on the team has emerged or is capable at relieving some of his other burdens. I still think that Tyrese is the degree of playmaker that you want the ball in his hands a lot, but when you face a switching defense, if you can move him off the ball in certain circumstances and he can hit catch-and-shoot threes, that tells me that somebody else has really wowed me in some other area, and that's good for what the Pacers are doing moving forward. He only attempted 1.6 catch-and-shoot th- threes per game for the Pacers last year. His catch-and-shoot three volume has been very low with the Kings and the Pacers, um, and yet he's shooting like 43% on them. So mm-hmm. um, I'd like to tap into more of that. He's shooting over 40% on both types of pull-up or you know off the catch. So that would be my answer. Um I hope that it's Tyrese because that would be good for Tyrese. And it would tell me that something happened with the rest of the roster. Um, Keeler at Andrew Keeler has anything in preseason changed the idea that the Pacers are going all in on switching. 
I don't think that I've really seen any difference in that. Um, or at least I, I don't I don't have the 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 thought that that's going to change um, based on what we saw. Okay, so I'm I'm completely on the opposite end of the spectrum oh, really? there. They weren't switching it to five spot really during preseason. Um, not like they were last year. Like if Jalen was at the five, they were pretty much switching everything. A lot of times if Isaiah Jackson was at the five, they were switching everything. They were even trying to switch at times with Goga. Um, I think just because it was easier to put it all together. There were games where Isaiah Jackson would be used in drop sometimes. Um, or like when they were in Houston, they tried to play Goga at the level. Um, so they, they mixed it up, but it was it was moving increasingly towards switching. That's not the way the scheme has really shook out here. I mean, when they played the Hornets, they had Miles in a very deep drop against Plumley. They had him in a very deep drop against Hartenstein. They had him in a very deep drop against Sengun. Um, even when Isaiah Jackson's been out there, they've been mostly playing him in drop. They've done late switching quite a bit, mostly because the guards are just getting creamed by screens. Like Andrew Nemhard and Benedict Mathern, it's almost guaranteed to be a late switch anytime the two of them are navigating stuff. Mm-hmm. They're switching the other spots. Um, yeah, mainly I was more one through four, not to go back. Yeah, but yeah that's... one through four, they're doing a lot of switching. Like some of that I would probably ease up on in certain circumstances. Like I don't think it was advantageous to be switching the Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle, DHOs and side pick and rolls with Tyrese and Jalen. That's giving you two weak spots. I don't need Julius Randle pounding Tyrese on the block and I don't need Jalen Brunson attacking Jalen Smith in space. But um, you can also hear them like they're not switching on side pick and rolls. You can hear Jalen, Miles. I mean, you can really hear Miles yelling out blue on all those. They they don't want to be switching on that. They're trying to keep that action on the sidelines. So, yeah, I think that there's been an adjustment there. And I think that I mainly agree with those adjustments, especially given what matchups we've seen so far, because they haven't played really against shooting bigs. Although it was it was rather obnoxious, the degree to which they were giving Shen Goon space to shoot. Um, they're having some breakdowns and then like literally miles wasn't closing out at all. Like he was just staring at him, shoot the ball from three. And that's how he made a couple of those in the first half. But um, I think I agree with those adjustments, but yeah, I would say that there is an idea that the Pacers are not all in on switching completely. Um, Keeler Dwayne Kitchell at Dwayne K. We've had a taste of what this team looks like on defense this year. If you were coach, what type of defense would you be installing for them? What kind of defense? Uh, I don't. I don't want to cop out. I don't have a great answer just because I the personnel is a. The personnel feels like it's going to change. Um, B. I don't know what the best defense is for for what the personnel is right now. Uh, I think mainly. I mean, another aspect that I've noticed a lot from this defense when I was just saying that, that they're playing those guys in deep drops, if the big is like handling in DHO situations or then they're in the pick and roll, is that they are trying very hard to stay out of rotation. So like they're just going to defend those pick and pops with two guys, whether they're going to late switch or they're just going to let the big shoot. They're not rotating over from the weak side. Um, They're trying to prevent scrambling as much as possible, or at least it seems to me that they are. Um, they're also giving these guys, it feels to me, room to make those types of reads and situations like the big calling out if they need to peel back. Um, Andrew Nemhard in the game that I have the tweet about nexting from the side and realizing like Terry Taylor's not getting through. Um, being aggressive at the nail um, has led them to be in somewhat scramble situations, but it seems like they don't want to be in rotation. Um, 
my answer to Dwayne is like, thank goodness I'm not the coach. I I don't want to make that type of decision. I think yeah. overall, like in comparison, like I could tell within three games of preseason of the Nate Bjorken year that that was not going to work. I felt very confident that over the long run, that there was going to be a lot of diminishing returns from pressuring to that degree with that roster and that it wasn't going to fit completely with that roster and that they weren't sold when they started mixing in zone. I'm like, they have never practiced this. It doesn't look like they have any idea what they're doing. And like, I felt very strongly in that regard. Um, Last year, I felt like they tried to coach somewhat to the personnel, but the roster just was what it was. And it just didn't feel like they could balance both of those types of schemes at once. And they Mm -hmm. didn't have great on ball defenders. And it just didn't feel like they were like the difference last year is they had veteran level people that I felt like should have been able to do better in what they were executing than what they were. And it was just like, okay, you're saying you're trying to teach principles, but what real principles do you have here? And what is your identity on defense? They never had one. Like that's the difference between Bjorkren and the first Carlisle season. I did not agree with what Bjorkren's approach was, but I knew what the approach was. And I could tell you, this is what their identity is trying to be on defense. Last year, I have no idea what the defensive identity was. This year, it feels like it's suited more to their personnel of what they're going to do. Like clearly they'll make adjustments but I think it's just more about execution. Like a lot of what I was seeing that was happening during preseason, I didn't feel like, oh, that makes no sense. Why are they doing that as much as, oh, they just don't have anybody that can guard that guy. <laughs> you know, and I think that that's how we're going to feel a lot of games this year. Like they just, they have holes on the roster or they're trying to do what they can here, but there's just not a lot. Like if I could do anything to answer Dwayne's question is, I would probably be what they're doing with, with miles. I would be in dropper at the level with miles, depending upon who the pick and roll ball handler is. Cause I think he can do both of those. And then I would be playing Isaiah Jackson with him in some minutes. And I would be putting him on the lower usage wing. And if Isaiah Jackson player who is the lower usage wing happens to be put in the pick and roll, I would be switching that. And then when miles isn't involved in the pick and roll there, like let's pretend, you know, Tyrese and, and Isaiah Jackson are involved in the pick and roll. They switch it. Then I would have miles kick, kick out, switch Tyrese from that mismatch. So that, you know, if he's in the corner, then Tyrese goes to the corner so that you're not creating that mismatch. I would continue to do what they're doing in the pick and pop to stay out of rotation. If the big beats you, the big beats you, unless it's like, you know, I don't think I'm just going to let Jokic tee up shot after shot after shot. But in most situations, that's probably what I would do. Um, and then I would try to find one zone that I could be very good at depending upon what we see from the roster, because I do think that you need to be able to do other things. And then just generally speaking about defense, I'm pretty in on the idea of directional defense and that, and this is becoming more prevalent in the NBA and in the Euro league that no more weak side and strong side. Like it has to do with where the ball is going. If you're going toward the one side or the two side, meaning is there, you know, two people available to tag or is there only one? And maybe depending upon what direction the ball is going in, that dictates what type of coverage you're having. Um, I also like in the long term, I think that you need to be able to be flexible and be able to mix in some other coverages too to keep teams off balance. So um, I think that's mainly where I'm at on all that. Just like, you know, doing a show and recover potentially with Tyrese and Jalen. So you're not giving up that mismatch depending upon, you know, the opponent. Um, But yeah, thank goodness that I'm not Rick Carlisle and that I don't have to make those decisions. Um, but another Rick Carlisle question, basketball, John five, is Rick a good X's and O's coach? Oh, definitely. I think that goes without question. Um, like, 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 like we talked about with Benedict, like, I think he's done tremendous stuff in terms of getting him the ball already and, um, 
finding it ways to to help him create advantages. Like I think to me, it's just more about, and we talked about this a lot last year. It's how adaptive he is to personnel. Like I think that changed over the the, the end of last year um, and the end of Sabonis's tenure. But like, yeah, I think, um, yeah, Rick's one of the best X's and O's minds in the world. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think this is much of a question. I mean, specific things that I would look at too that don't readily catch the eye probably, but like they're in Atlanta, um, they take a timeout. He anticipated that a lot of teams, you know, in those types of situations will come out and be in a zone. Like under Bjorkren, they would pretty much always be in a zone on baseline out of bound plays or they would come out in triangle in two or two, three or something. He anticipated that the Hawks would do that and he automatically had called a zone buster as the ATO. That's the type of look ahead that he has a lot of the time. And that's why it was so weird that they were as bad in, in crunch time as they were um, both before and after, because he does have, you know, the ability to kind of foresee and put guys in the right positions. And then what I've said many times, like if people go back and look at that Andrew Nemhard piece, my favorite thing about his offense is that they have certain actions that trigger their flow game or trigger their reads. They look one way and then they will get to like six different things out of it. So like just with Andrew Nemhard, like they're running UCLA. A lot of their actions are getting triggered out of UCLA this year. So a UCLA cut, you're passing the ball to the wing and then you're cutting off a screen from the high post. Um, like just five things that they'll do. They'll come off that UCLA cut and then they'll go set an actual flex screen for like Kendall Brown or Aaron Neesmith. They come to the opposite side. Sometimes to keep them off balance, they'll ghost that flex screen and then they'll go into Chicago. So a pinned on into the handoff from the big at the top. Um, sometimes Andrew Nemhard will fake like he's going to go do that way. And then he circles back around to the right side of the floor through a handoff from, you know, Goga, you can see it in that possession or they'll, it looks like they're going to do Chicago, but then both guys will cut from that side of the floor. And now it's an empty side ball, you know, an empty pick and roll. Like I can tell you like 10 different options they're getting out of this, where it's just slightly different every time it's, it's pairing actions together. He's very good at layering actions one on top of the other it's not just and I think that that's kind of unique for a young roster too like a lot of times like if you watch Steven Silas who coached with Rick Carlisle coached the Houston Rockets last year I think a lot of people would tell you that they ran somewhat of a bland vanilla offense because they had younger guys and now you know they want to try to work and layer some stuff in like we're already seeing a lot of layers and a lot of reads being required from this roster and to a degree I think that's a good thing because they're going to have to learn how to play um, the game early on and continue to, you know, there might be hiccups, but I think he's going to help them along that. So yes, Rick Carlisle is a very good X's and O's coach. Um, Cyborgian at Ian Fowler, who is, I believe a Blazers fan, but um, listen to our last podcast. I heard you and Mark say something to the effect that Indy doesn't have any wings. Maybe you were joking. I follow the Blazers. Mm. So obviously I have issues, but anyway, is the league actually moving toward positionless basketball or is that an illusion like living in a simulation i think it's kind of uh i I don't i think there's there's like a middle ground there i don't think it's an illusion um i think there's been a conflation of uh the front court players getting more skilled with that being positionless i still think positions matter a lot um it's not fully positionless like especially when we're talking about defense and how that equates to, you know, what you can and can't do on the floor. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think it is definitely trending more towards just size and skill, having more of a intersection point than in prior years. I think that um, to an extent, I agree with both sides of this because 
I've said this many times, but like more and more we are looking at it and we're not matching role to size. We're matching role to skill. So before it was like, you're this size, you're a power forward, hence you do this. Yeah. And now it's like, what can you do? And we're going to allow you to do that. Um, like when you watch Terry Taylor play, he and Buddy Heald are virtually the same size. They're not doing the same things. Um, but that being said, I do think that we sometimes take the positionalist thing too far. Like we can't have it w- both ways. We can't talk for a year that it matters if Miles plays the five and then be like, oh, p- basketball is positionalist. It doesn't matter. Like, okay, so why does it matter if Miles plays the five? Which this was a very strange conversation during the last broadcast where it was like they were talking about why does it matter if Miles or like what changes for Miles at the five? And they're like, well, he gets to stay home and protect the rim and he doesn't have to chase out to the corners. I'm like, when was he chasing out to the corners? Other than when they played 1-3-1, he was staying back. Like he was never defending at the four. Sabonis was like, and and why would you flip-flop that? But regardless, like what changes for Miles at the five is who defends him. Um, that's the way I would answer it. He's going to be defended by rim protectors. You might sag back. That changes what he can do in the pick and pop. It, it changes what stuff he does on the court. Just like with Jalen Smith, him playing at the four is very different than him playing at the five. Potentially we're seeing it like uh, stretchy fours in the NBA need to be able to attack a closeout in some way, shape or form, or just be absolutely elite at shooting the, shooting the ball. Um, so yeah, I think that the, the those types of designations do matter, especially in terms of who guards you. Um, it, it also depends on what scheme and what system you're playing in. But uh, I think both things can be taken a little bit too far, I guess is what I would say. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. Um, oh, I forgot that in the prior, we should go back. Cause I don't know who asked it, but when we were talking about the young guys, somebody did ask a question about Terry Taylor and wanted to know, like, do you see Terry Taylor being like this guy who gets deflections and is in the Thad role? Not Thad in Chicago and not Thad in Toronto, but who Thad was with the Pacers. Like, is that what you view from Terry? Uh, I think you'd have to take some pretty significant steps forward defensively to get there. Um, I don't think that he's a bad defender by any stretch, but I feel like he could be a more aggressive and physical defender at times. Um, like, not like I, I I totally agree with what you were saying about how he played Julius Randle, but I do think that there's room for him to be, and maybe that I I think it, I'd have to like sit in on you know uh, team meetings to to know what they're asking of him, but like I would like to see him be like just more aggressive in general on screens, um, especially given that he is like a little bit smaller for where he's playing normally, like getting the most out of his wingspan and how he can use some of his lateral quickness and stuff to to stifle things more, like. I, I do think there's room for him to improve his activity um, and maybe get to that kind of level. Um, I don't know if he's like, I think he's obviously like a really good DHO um, and like high post up. I don't know if I'd quite have him as the level of passer that that is. Maybe I'd be wrong in that. I don't know if you'd agree. Well, Thad wasn't really doing that though. Oh, that is got fair. to Chicago. Um, they weren't really using him. I mean, Thad wasn't even really used as the screener that much. He pretty much floated around in space, manufactured angles for dump off passes. Like he'd get used as the screener more if like they got cross matched and it was like, oh, Embiid's guarding Thad, put Thad in the action so that they can take advantage of, of Embiid in the drop or Gobert in the drop. Um, that was kind of more when he would get deployed in that type of way because they didn't want to put like oh miles is being defended by ben simmons we don't want to have to deal with a switch so we'll use thad instead i think terry gets used more naturally as the screener than thad would in those situations because they feel good about um terry rolling but they are both lefties with unique floater um mechanics 
So that's comparable. Um, I think that Terry probably has a little bit more ball skills than Thad did when he was still with the Pacers. Defensively, Thad was like, he was the guy who was half had enough heft to handle people in the post, but could also the, the elasticity to guard out in the perimeter. That's why like in that Cavs series, they would put him on Kevin Love when Kevin Love was at the five so that he could be, you know, defending that in space. And they would put miles on like Jeff green and just have him sag off or on whoever the lowest volume shooter was so that he could stay back around the rim. So I don't really think they'll do that necessarily with Terry Taylor, but um, I don't think they're completely comparable, but I can see, you know, maybe some loose chalk outlines. Yeah. So um... we're now in the final segment, which is just miscellaneous fun stuff. Um, Kyle Taylor, one Kyle Taylor. What is your favorite non-basketball part of the game? Jerseys, courts, mascots, examples of whatever you really love. My favorite part of the game? Non-basketball part of the game. Jerseys, courts, mascots. Wow. That's a great question. Um, I will say, I kind of, I think I'm going to say jerseys, honestly. Like, I... Maybe this is my own bias. I am normally a pretty frugal person. Like, I don't love spending money. Um, the only things that I really spend money on are basketball jerseys and shoes. Um, like, I have so many things stocked on eBay that I really want to get. Um, like, my Ray Allen Sonics jersey is, like, one of my prized possessions. Um, I just love the aesthetic of of 90s and early 2000s basketball like not the super baggy era but like i don't know there's just like something about it that makes me feel good i don't know how else to put it i think part of it's because like i like we've talked about support but like basketball became like really central to me when i was going through a really tough time in my life so i just think that i've always kind of put that stuff on a pedestal but yeah i love like i, I love jerseys um i think that would be the one for me do you have a specific jersey that you oh that's tough have an affinity uh, for I think I'd have to, I can run through a couple. Um, the 90s Sonics jerseys, like when they play uh, the Bulls in the finals, in the 96, 97 finals, or was that 97, 98? I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, those are some of my favorite. I love those jerseys. Um, the Sonics just had amazing colors, amazing jerseys, amazing arena. I'm still so salty that that team doesn't exist right now. Um, I have always loved the uh, early 2000s Kings jerseys. I think those are clean. I love those things. Um, I was going back through and watching a bunch of uh, Chris Weber uh, highlights recently because he is so fun to watch. Um, I do. I really like LeBron's first era of of Cavs jerseys. Um, I know that might not be a popular opinion. Those are some of my favorites. Um, the Orlando pinstripes. The original ones those are amazing um and then if i had to do a final one that's honestly let me open my closet right now just to to check um do you have a favorite jersey i mean i own jerseys growing up um yeah. i had a jermaine o'neill jersey i had a t-mac houston jersey i had i think i had a reggie miller jersey when i was really really young um i had one that the best bang for the buck jersey I ever owned, Tim Duncan. Oh, I had yes. a I found a women's Tim Duncan jersey. I forget where where I was shopping at, and I was like, oh heck yes, Tim Duncan, and it fit. And like 
you knew that it was just perfect because he didn't change teams. Like so yeah. often these <laughs> yeah, players change point. teams and then your jersey's dated. And um, I will say like now, like just covering the league and like now that there's constant new jersey releases, I don't know. Yeah. Like are the Pacers having a city jersey? I've seen no announcements on this. No, I have no but, idea. But like I wish I was a person who cared more about it. It seems like a lot of people online really care about these jersey releases. And like I just can't muster that for myself. Yeah, I will um, say I don't have the same affinity anymore. Like, I like the old jerseys. Um, yeah, I, don't I mean, really... it, exactly. Like, as a kid, it was just about me liking that player and being like, yeah. cool, I get to wear their name and their number. Like, it wasn't really so much about the design of the jersey. Um, and now I just, like, I, I want to be a person who cares. I'm just not. Like, mm-hmm. I will say, like, if the Pacers released, like, there was some rumor on Reddit I saw that, like, they were going to release city jerseys that had to do with, like, construction because of all that's going on at bankers life Fieldhouse and like Ew. what's coming next i'm like I, I, I don't know if this is true listener i don't know i just read it on reddit i the person might have been making up a joke i have no idea but i'm like if that is the case for a team that won't even like use the word rebuild that will be hilarious and i will have a lot of problems exercising restraint and not like using a starter pack um uh, tweet with like tonka trucks and... that would be kind of hilarious um but overall like even as a player like i just didn't i didn't care what my jersey looked like i just cared a lot more that it actually fit and what the fabric was because when i was in high school we had got these new jerseys and like they assigned us numbers based on our height so if you were taller you had to get a bigger jersey well i was like one of the taller players but i'm also really skinny so like my jersey was huge and it would never stay tucked in so like i didn't care what it looked like i just wanted a freaking uniform that fit that's really all that mattered for me as far as court designs, again, I don't really care as long as it doesn't distract from my viewing experience. I do like the entertainment value of how big the logos are now, just for my own tinfoil hat conspiracy theories, where now we like, I feel like the logos have gotten bigger so that we can talk about logo threes more. Like, oh, because like Andrew Nemhard took a shot from the logo, but like in reality, an old logo, a normal sized one, he didn't take a logo three, but we get to talk about him taking a logo three because the P at the center of the court is humongous. Mm-hmm. So I like that aspect of it, but um, just being a per- an old person who yells at clouds, <laughs> he says, what's your favorite non-basketball part of the game? An example of something you really love. Here's what I really love, Kyle Taylor. I love being able to go to a gym and hearing shoes squeak on the court oh, and yeah. hearing communication that's going on in the court and hearing what coaches are yelling out and saying. I like experiencing the basketball. What I don't like is subwoofer music playing so loud that I feel like I'm going to have an irregular <laughs> heartbeat and I can't even talk to the people who are beside me. Like, turn the music down. Like, I understand the players want it. I understand that they don't want us hearing everything that's happening on a basketball court, but must it be to that decibel? I have so I a I totally agree with you, and that wants that leads me to segue into something I want to say too. Okay, I I will go on record as saying that I would much rather go to a grassroots tournament than an NBA game, like yeah. without question. Oh my god, it's so much fun being in a grassroots gym. Um, like there is just nothing quite like the anxiety of knowing that there are nine games going on at the same time and you really don't want to miss out on any of the prospects playing because you want to see what everyone's doing you want to talk to uh everybody there and see like what else you can find out and and hear who's playing well and and you know just get that kind of vibe but also like when you hear a big play that gets made like it's just kind of like the entire gym like goes silent for a second because like like, I don't know if, like, somebody, like, punches a crazy dunk in transition or, or gets a poster. Like, it's just, like, you hear, like, everything. And, like, 
I'll never forget. I was at a tournament in, uh, I think it was in St. Louis um, over the summer. And like one of the coolest moments was like, everybody has like that one game circled on their docket for that day. And it was Michael Porter Jr.'s team played. Uh, yeah. Michael Porter Jr. Elite. Cause he already has his own AAU team played Brad Beal elite. Um, and that had like, I think there were eight division one prospects in that game and a couple of like top 100 guys. And it was just wild. Cause I think that was at like 5 PM, uh, whatever time zone that is, uh, I think central. And I, I mean, I, I got there like 40 minutes before it started. Cause I wanted to actually have a seat and like, you end up like the entire gym, like ends up around there. And there's just like, to me, like, like you mentioned, like hearing communication, seeing the things in person, they're just, you can't really replace that. It's so awesome. I love basketball. Basically, is my, my long, my long winded way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't, you know how when you go to a water park and there's a wave pool, and if you get in it and you're in it very long, that when you go to bed that night, you're still feeling the sensation of being in the wave pool? Yeah. I feel like when you're at a basketball game and they're constantly playing the like, everybody clap your hands, clap, 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 clap. Like you leave the game, and after you've heard that for like the 10 millionth time, it's stuck in your head the whole night. I just, I don't need all the sound effects. I understand that it's part of the entertainment value for some people, but like, it, it's just not my thing. But anyways, now that I'm done being an old person yelling at a cloud, <laughs> on to the next question. Jeff Hasser, Zach Lowe did his annual league pace, pass rankings. Who are in your top three league-wide, and where would you rank the Pacers? Ooh, that's a good question. And, I and would have just to give him credit, Kyle Taylor also asked the same question, okay. and he used it as watchability rankings, which I feel is a little bit different than league pass, but you can take it whichever way you want. Yeah. Um, for me, I would have the Pacers pretty far down. Um, like, I, And that's not to say that there's anything bad. You know me. like I'm excited to watch all 30 teams play basketball this year. Um, that's just how I approach the game. I think as far as just like where I'm at with this Pacers team, and I think once – and I don't mean to seem, seem harsh. Like, I love watching Miles Turner play basketball. I am at the point where I just don't want to watch him play in an Indiana Pacers jersey anymore because um, I'm ready to see him in a place that's different. Um, and I, you know, that is what that is what it is. My top three teams, I think for me, oh, this is tough. Like, I think I'm going to have the Wolves up there just because, like, by sheer virtue of – I really want to watch how they integrate Rudy Gobert. I love watching how Chris Finch operates and and makes things happen on court. And I'm just really intrigued by what that that group could look like. The Pelicans are up there as well because I love their personnel. Watching Zion Williamson play basketball is awesome. Um, And I'm just very excited for what that group could be. Uh, I can't wait to watch Herb Jones play defense again. And then... I'm going to throw Orlando up there too. I am so excited about this Orlando group. Like I love Paolo Bancaro. Um, Franz Wagner continues to just be really impressive for me. I and could not be higher on Wendell Carter Jr. Like I just, I'm excited to watch that group continue to gel. Um, I didn't include the Cleveland Cavaliers because I don't get them on league pass. So that's uh, that's how I cheated. Um, but yeah, who, who would you have up there? Just speaking of that, I don't get the Chicago Bulls on League Pass. I don't live in Chicago. It's like so and they're, they're like, you have a channel that I'm like, no, I don't have a channel that shows Bulls games. Like, I barely saw the Bulls play last year because I couldn't watch any of it. Oh, and so then, like, it blacks you out too. for three days. It's like, I'm not watching an old Bulls game three days later. Like, sorry, I don't have time for that. But um, 
the Pacers are number one. They will be my most watched Pacer, <laughs> my most watched team. Everybody should know that. Zach Lowe was wrong, putting them 29th. They are clearly the number one team. I will probably watch all their games twice. Last year, I watched some of their games three times. So um, I think Tyrese is pretty fun and entertaining player personally. Obviously, I have not written about him enough because Twitter um, was showing a trend of the Pacers Knicks game, and there was Sabonis in a jersey. As like Twitter didn't know that Sabonis didn't play for the Pacers enough. Um, but I say that somewhat tug in cheek, but my league pass rankings are a little bit different because, you know, this is a job for us. So there are certain markets where I do more than others. There are certain markets where I've never done anything with anybody podcasting wise or YouTube wise, but the ones that I have done multiple shows with, I typically trend towards those teams a little bit more just so that I can go on and be, you know, a little bit more intelligent. But if I'm just talking about like my own personal side piece teams, like I, I, I tend, I tend to turn on the Denver Nuggets. Yeah. Um, if it's a night when the Pacers aren't playing or the Pacers get done playing, and there's a Western Conference games to choose from, I will typically lean towards Denver. Um, obviously, Nikola Jokic is a hot ticket to turn on and watch, but this year I'm a lot more interested too because Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. are back. I think Bruce Brown and and KCP make a ton of sense for that roster. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they're going to be really interesting. Um, I do agree with you with the T-Wolves. Um, I'm not super huge on, like, the too-big Gobert-Cat experiment, I guess. Like, it's fine. I get why they did it. But I do like – I mean, I liked Chris Finch when he interviewed for the Pacers. I think that he does a lot of really in- inventive, cool, wrinkle-type stuff for Minnesota. I think that the Minnesota broadcast is really good. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of coverage, really good coverage, people on Twitter that cover the T-Wolves at a really high level. And I also have a soft spot for Jade McDaniels. So – um, really excited to see what he does this year. Um, my other teams, it would probably be, I really like the Houston Rockets. That's a fun team. Like I know that I said earlier that their, that their offense was vanilla last year, but like just watching back that game, that preseason game, like Jalen green is just, he's electricity. shooting he's so to the fun court. to watch. Um, his, what he does in transition. I don't know his ability to punch a gap with the basketball and just to get into space. His first step is ridiculous. Um, I think I don't even want to know how many points per game he could score eventually in the NBA. I don't think it's real. I don't think it's unrealistic to think that he could average 25, 26 points per game um, pretty easily, not necessarily this season, but like he just scores the ball at such a high level. If he's making threes, what he can already do getting downhill. Shen Goon, he's going to do like three or four slick things every game that you're just going to want to go back and watch. And I think there's even more that they could be doing with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Jabari during the pre-draft process, like I wasn't super high on him as like a primary creator option, but very fun defensively. Want to see all the absurdities he does with the, how high his shot releases. Um, Tari, Tari's done really well for them in summer league and preseason. I just think they have a fun young core. Yeah. An electric young core, I think, is the term that Steven Silas likes to use to describe them a lot. I think they could put out a pretty fun brand of basketball to turn on and watch. Um, and then also, like, I I had to take a break a year off from the Raptors after the Bjorkren situation because I had just seen so much Raptors film. Like, I didn't see a ton of them last year because it was just like, okay, that's that's enough of that. But then toward the back end of last year and then over the summer because I was doing various projects – they're interesting to me, not so much because of what their ceiling is as like, it feels like they're a team on the precipice of something. Either their experiment is really going to work and they found like what I said before, this market inefficiency where like, hey, 
we have this different form of basketball and we're going to make this work or it's going to be like, hey, we actually do need some more ball handlers or, you know, whatever else it might be. And then maybe they're in for a consolidation trade at some point. So I like watching teams that are tipping on either the side of going from good to really good or like, hey, this isn't quite working. Plus, they just do a lot of inventive type stuff, especially on the defensive end that I think is pretty interesting to watch that Nick Nurse does. So. Um, I guess those are the four teams that I would kind of look at. And I tend like when I'm balancing what I'm going to watch, I want to have some Western conference teams like Houston and Denver. Well, I should throw in there, like the Clippers are going to be on national TV a bunch, but I will watch the Clippers. Like, yeah. I know people aren't going to want to hear it, but I, I like watching Kawhi Leonard and Paul George play basketball a lot. So that's another team that I'll throw on there, but I like to have some Western conference teams pegged that way. I'm getting a good sample of the West while I'm also trying to keep track of the East. So that answers that one. Julie, Julie Cheka asks, what outshine flavor doesn't exist, but should? Oh boy. I love this question. You gotta let me take this one first. <laughs> of course. Because um, blueberry acai used to be a flavor and they discontinued it. And it really haunts me because I never had a chance to try it. I didn't find it before they discontinued it. But like my main goal in life is twofold. Like if this whole basketball thing doesn't work out, which kind of seems like it isn't, but if it doesn't, um, I either need a co-branded outshine flavor in the same way as like celebrity endorsed meals at McDonald's. Like I want the Caitlin Cooper popsicle, like Travis Scott had the Travis Scott meal at McDonald's. I think that I've earned that. Like, I think that outshine should realize that I've probably gained them at least 90 extra dollars just from talking about them. Like they're, they could miss out on tens of dollars, Mark, if they don't do this. My other goal, if that, if that doesn't work out, is that I travel around to locally owned popsicle shops in Indiana, like Guy Fieri, like diners, drive-ins and dives and review their locally made popsicles and decide if they're better than outshine. Or is not. that a thing? Like there are popsicle shops. Oh, there is Mark. There is one. I've been alerted to it. Nicey treat in broad ripple and in Fishers is a popsicle shop. Um, so it's That's on my wild. radar. I'm just letting you know, it's on my radar at some point this season i'm going to nicey treat nicey treat if you're listening i'm coming but as far as the actual flavors of outshine um i would really like there to be a cranberry lime i'd be all about Ooh, that that would be we, good yeah we don't have enough cranberry popsicles in this space um i think that they need to bring back blueberry and like pacer sports and entertainment if you're listening Let's get this co-branded thing off the ground because um, Blueberry Lemonade, Outshine Popsicle, sold exclusively at GameBridge Fieldhouse. Just saying. Just just speaking that into existence. Blue and yellow Popsicle at your games. That would be the Caitlin flavor. I'd be all about Blueberry Lemonade, the Popsicle. And then also Ruby Red Grapefruit. We don't have any Grapefruit Popsicles. And Mark, you know, I do like Grapefruit. Um, I would also just like regular orange instead of tangerine. I'm not really all yeah, about the tangerine. I would agree. And then that. also banana. Before I got on the Outshine kick, there used to be popsicle brand triple layer fruit, and one of the layers was banana, and it was surprising how good it was. So I think a banana Outshine would just be tremendous. I love bananas, so I I could I could I I could I could rock with that. I think that could be good. Um. I might even put pear on there if I'm being honest. Yeah, like, there's just a lot of untapped cute. fruits. There's a lot of untapped fruits that aren't popsicles, though. Like an outshine, nobody's better equipped than outshine to make these things happen. But cranberry lime would be great for Christmas. They should release that. That would be. Do you? How do you feel about the? Do you remember the LeBron cranberry sprite? 
It was not that good. Uh, what? I loved it. I thought it was good. <laughs> it had a weird holiday taste to it. Like it wasn't just cranberry lime. It had like some other wintry spice taste. Oh, uh, that's fair. I I liked it though. I thought it was good. Like I don't I don't really drink soda anymore, but I thought it was good. Okay. Oh, well, do you have any flavors that other flavors that you would like to suggest, or do you think that I've just you know? No, I'm all? trying to think. Um, blood orange would be cool. Yeah, I like mm-hmm. I love blood orange flavored things. Um, don't really like blood oranges themselves because it's a very uh, it it is a flavor. Like, it do you is know a, a blood flavor. orange thing that's really good? What? Okay, Blaze Pizza, LeBron's Pizza Chain. You know, I'm they sell blood right. orange. They sell blood orange lemonade there. Oh, okay, you, that would be that yeah. would be good. I love blood orange. It's lemonade. it's it is it is a beverage to behold. Let me I've tell you, I've never actually they, had Blaze Pizza before. It's it's pretty decent actually. Like I would of 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 chain pizza restaurants, I it's it's pretty near to the top of my list of like not locally owned pizza places. So, but um, yeah, it's funny. I lived within walking distance from one, but I worked at a bar that was connected to a pizza place. So I was so sick of pizza by that entire time I lived there. But you get free refills of the blood orange lemonade if you go there, and like that's how I get back at all the pain that LeBron caused me growing up beating Pacer teams is to go and drink tons and tons of the blood orange lemonade. It is really kind of insane to think about how many times he just demolished a Pacer team. Well, um, you go to Blaze Pizza and get some of his lemonade and make it better. That's uh that's our reparations, yeah. Um is that our last question? Oh no, 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 Mark. Okay. We have a lot more to go. I was gonna say I um, have okay, because I have a question. Zach Shock asks me, how do the changing seasons impact your popsicle intake? Well, Zach, I think you should have listened to some of the other podcasts because I can tell you it does not. I do not abide by seasonal food norms. I don't care what the temperature is outside. Now, I will tell you that if it's frigid out or it's snowing, I'm not going to go take my popsicle outside and eat it, but I don't understand why anyone cares that it's December when they're sitting inside. Why? Why? It's 72 in your house. Why can't you eat a popsicle? I don't. I don't get that. Like I'm not I I do take popsicles outside in the summer sometimes. I'm not going to do that when there's snow all over the ground in Indiana, but it's not going to stop me from eating them. Fair enough. Uh I don't agree. I like I think it's fine. I the, Yeah, it's the people who do it outside that bother me. I went to I went to the Cleveland Guardians game, uh second to last regular season game 2 weeks ago. Um and People were eating ice cream when it was like 45 and windy out. And I was just kind of appalled. Um, I was also appalled because there was a stand that was dedicated to only, and I mean only, like this was the only thing you could buy. And it was iced coffee infused with Jägermeister. And that just doesn't need to exist. I'm sorry. You don't need that. I'm a that. little afraid of it. I, I am too. I did not go near it. Uh, but yeah, I... I agree. I think you can you can indulge and enjoy your your wintry treats uh, no matter what season it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't abide by any seasonal food numbers. If I if I want pumpkin pie in May, I'm gonna eat the pumpkin pie. You're not gonna stop me. If I want soup when it's 90 degrees outside and I want to make soup, I'm gonna make it because I just don't care. Um, Chris at Passion and Foley, best food at the arena. What is your favorite arena food, Mark? You, you just, uh, I'm guessing it's Jägermeister with iced coffee. Oh, clearly. Uh, I think it's popcorn for me. I'm not really like a big eat dinner at arenas person. I love that pick. Strong yeah. pick. Yeah, I'm a big popcorn fan. Like, I, I love, A, I mean, I just love popcorn. 
Um, but B, like I'm, I normally, if I'm going to a game, I go get dinner before or after, depending on the time, just because yeah. I'd rather eat somewhere else than eat arena food. Like I don't hate arena food. I, if I had to pick something outside popcorn, it'd be like a brat because I don't really like hot dogs. But yeah, another strong opinion. Very, it very accurate. Opinion. Very accurate. Um, so I would say that in all my times of being to Conseco slash Panker's Life slash GameBridge. Um, when I've purchased food and some of this, like I had to, I got online and looked at what they have because of COVID last year, like I, that limited my in-person attendance. So I didn't completely know, to be honest with you, but in my past trips there, I would always, this is going to shock you, Mark, what I would search out and find. Ooh. I'd always search for the smoothie stand. So Maui, wowie. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i went looking for i like the smoothie stand um as you all know i like frozen fruity things so um it turns out maui wowie still exists i think it's on the balcony level um i also found that they have a snack shop that said that they sell frozen novelties and let me tell you i'd really like to know what these frozen novelties are they didn't they didn't want to say but like are they outshine popsicles because that's what i feel like it should be Overall, though, I agree with you. I'm a purist. I like the popcorn cart. I like going to high school games and getting popcorn. So if I'm at GameBridge or wherever at a professional sport game, I want to eat popcorn. It takes me back to times when I'd be at like my dad's games at some far off game and who knows where, where I wouldn't have time to eat before we'd have to get in the car and drive however long to some rural high school and then there would be nothing to eat. So popcorn would have to serve to, for my dinner until like 11 o'clock at night. So that's probably why I still get the popcorn now. And I also just like popcorn. So Elliot Beaver, how much longer will it take Outshine to sponsor the pod? You want to answer that, Mark? How much time would it take for what? For Outshine to start sponsoring our podcast. I, I feel like we just need to start tagging them in everything we do. You know? I think it's going to take a good long while, Elliot. And here's why, because we both have more followers than the Outshine brand account has. <laughs> that, is that, that is not a flex. They're just not a very active brand account. And when we did interact with them the last time, like they have sent me a gratuity box, but like they seemed very confused in the direct messages about what was going on. So I, I don't think that we're really on their radar as a podcast, to be honest. Like, if, if anything, I should, like, I have probably 20 pictures now of people buying these popsicles or being in the popsicle aisle. Like, if I just collected all those and just, like, spam their DMs with them, maybe they would care a little bit more. I don't know. But I'm guessing that their our last show didn't help our cause. So I'm just going to open the door here because you've now tried the mango with tahine oh, popsicles. God. Um. Now, remember that we would like to be sponsored at some point in time, but please give your review. Well, okay. I would like to be sponsored, but also I'm going to be honest. These yeah. were, this was, this was an abomination, Caitlin. This was actually terrible. Like this is one of, I texted you as soon as I ate it. And I was just like, this is one of the worst things I've ever put in my mouth. Um, and I, I told you, I don't want to tell you what happened when I put it in my mouth. <laughs> Uh, I feel like you do have to be open and honest about that, but um, yeah, I was uh, I was kind of appalled. So you let just... me ask you: Was it the flavor, or was it the sensation of hot ice? It was both. It was wild. It felt like my lips were at the same time swelling up because of the of the tahini, but then also like not swelling because of the ice like and it being cold it was just it was very uncomfortable 
like extremely uncomfortable. It was like watching something like not bad happen, not in a horror movie or anything, but like watching like a really uncomfortable thing in a in a TV show or a movie and like you just know it's going to be an awkward exchange. That's how it felt trying to eat how, that. How did you obstacle. feel when you first took it out of the wrapper? I was I was like, "Oh, this is not just like a little bit of tahini. Like this is like tahini tahini." It like, was like you definitely had like I I was a little bit scared just looking at it. Yeah, if I'm it being looks honest. like somebody... my hands trembled a little bit as I opened the wrapper. It literally looks like okay, you know those uh those uh not popsicles, those like ice cream sticks that have like the stuff on the outside. Mm-hmm. Just like that. Yeah, it um, was terrifying. It was terrifying, and the other part of it was that like my one of the people there in the and the text that I shared said that it looked and tasted like dragon breath, and I think that that's fairly accurate. Yeah. Um. It wasn't so much like I imagine that people who like mango with tahini probably would like this fine. It was just it was I just you know how I find jello unsettling when we did yeah. our least favorite five foods like I just when when you eat it, it's just very confusing what you're supposed to do with it. Like that's how I felt with this popsicle. Like when it got in my mouth, I was just like, what is happening? Um, it was experiential, though. I think that, you know, if other people like that flavor profile, they might still like this as in a popsicle form. I don't know. Um, I would rank it last on the power rankings, but I still recommend people to go get it just just to share their experiences. With I don't them. I don't um, recommend it to anyone. Save yourselves, save your money. Don't try it, please. I mean, you'll like the other ones better, I would guess. Anyone would. I think it's funny because the one guy who ate it, who likes spicy food, just told me I, I followed up with him the other day about it. And he told me that he ate, he got rid of all the tahini, that he licked all the tahini off and then ate, like literally ate it as a mango popsicle. I was like, how did you survive that? That's awful. He's like, I didn't like it. So I needed to get rid of that part so that I could have a mango popsicle. I'm like, how was your tongue just not numb at that point in time? But yeah, I, it was wild. so bad for me. Like I was trying to send those text messages and I, I like could not spell tahini. Like I know what tahini is, but there's like random silent ends in all the text messages. That's funny. <laughs> I have oh, no man. excuse for that. That was poor. But moving on, Richmond at Richmond Food says, warm fall booze do you all like bourbon or spiced rum with your hot cider in the fall what's your take on hot toddies where are you at on mulled wine do you like to irish up your coffees uh i have this is gonna get me canceled i uh i bet we have the same take i'm ready for it i do not like cider okay that's not my take i was, I was gonna <laughs> like no you don't have the same take yeah i don't like cider um i don't like hot toddies i don't really like hot alcohol um yeah. like I really enjoy bourbon, but yeah, I don't like rum. I don't like things that have like cinnamony or spicy taste, like you mentioned the holiday spice. I don't like that. I mm -hmm. it just yeah, it's not very good to me. Like I hate fireball. Um especially too, because like if you have a cold fireball shot, it's the exact thing with with the mango tahine thing. Like you're it's cold, but also Jesus Christ, this is like it, it's like I just snorted cinnamon. It's terrible. Um, yeah, I don't like mulled wine either, but I also don't like wine in general. So that's part of it. Um, I'm glad we saved this part for the end because that's probably what makes people most upset. But um, yeah, do love me bourbon though. And I don't like putting whiskey in my coffee. I like my coffee. I, I'm I'm like a coffee snob. So no. Okay, I do like cold apple cider. Um, and here's the my take that nobody's going to like. He asked generally warm fall booze. Um, I don't really drink that much, 
really at all actually so i'm pretty boring in that regard and then number two i don't like hot drinks i don't like hot drinks of really any variety um i think i might have some residual bad feelings towards my experience with eggnog in my friend's basement that i told you about on the one podcast so Mm. um that might taint me a bit i love how wassail smells like when people at my house make wassail around christmas like a delightful smell i don't want to drink it wait what Um, is what is wassail Wassel's like hot apple, orange, spiced drink with like nutmeg in it. Like, I don't want to taste it, but it it smells really good when it's being made. Um, The only, the only hot drink, and this, I don't even drink hot coffee. I don't even like that. Mm -hmm. Um, The only hot drink I will consume is like if I'm really in the holiday spirit and I'm out and about like doing Christmas shopping or something. I might get a hot chocolate at this one place like not too chocolate. far from where I live that has like um it's a locally owned chocolate shop and it's really high quality and they make like homemade marshmallows like I might get like one or two of those a year otherwise I'm not consuming hot beverages. Um so I'm sure people will think that's really popular and that I'm really cool. You know um, what is good though? <laughs> so I don't I just don't like apple cider in general to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, hot or hot is way worse. Uh but um cherry cider if you can ever no no it's oh my word i'm not ever drinking a hot cherry no 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 no, not hot i don't i don't not hot hold hold cherry cider it's really good i promise i had maybe i'm biased so i grew up like not in the middle of nowhere but like adjacent to the middle of nowhere so like if you cross a couple like cross a couple country roads you're to the middle of nowhere. So if all I had to do was like drive eight minutes, not even like five minutes from my house growing up. And there was this farmer's market that was actually just like a stand in front of somebody's front yard with their farm. And this guy made his own cherry cider every fall. That was like how I knew it was fall when I was a kid. Cause I never really cared about like carving pumpkins and stuff. Like I liked doing other things. And um, so I always got a cherry cider and, strong recommend i've had cherry cider that's not just from this guy that's really good before so if you do find it do not heat it up but it is good promise i don't think i'm gonna like it if you i mean i'm willing to try things i'm willing to to try things but i i i have i mean i guess i did i didn't hate the cherry outshine popsicle it was fine i just love cherry wasn't my favorite but like cherries are just very mid um Craig at CEL and Pursuit has another question for you. Which is stronger, Caitlin's love of Outshine or Nikias's love of Martinelli's? Ooh, it's Caitlin's love of Outshine. Sorry, that like not even close. Like Nikias likes Martinelli's, and I would say loves Martinelli's, but Caitlin is Outshine. I like, drive fifty I minutes know... one way. Yeah, I drove I fifty say. minutes one way to get one of these flavors this summer, Mark. So yeah, I would know what what martinelli's is without my friendship with nikias i would have no idea outshine fucking existed if i didn't know you um so like yeah i don't know what that says about me i think that my entire personality is frozen popsicles and talking about the pacers i don't think there's much else to me so i don't don't know i might have to separate myself a bit um another fun question for (laughs) you says as she probably orders is feverishly searching for blueberry acai popsicles online i i looked for them last night to see if anybody like had leftover stock (laughs) just so that i could say i tried them all but nobody does 
Um, that's going to haunt me for a really long time. Jeff Hasser, side question. What would it take for Mark to get the Gordon Hayward haircut? Uh, I think you'd have to hold me at gunpoint. <laughs> like, I – no. Like, I would not do that. Even if I got paid, like, a pretty exorbitant amount of money, I don't think I would want to do that. That is – do you know anyone who has the Gordon Hayward haircut? Not that I associate with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is just that is a that is a dangerous I haircut. Like, to, I feel like yeah. so many of the guys that I knew growing up, like, well, didn't know, but like, I feel like I knew a lot of people growing up in rural Indiana who had that haircut. So it's it makes a bad sense. Haircut. Makes it's sense. The Gordon Hayward, haircut. being Indiana resident that he is, that also has it. Yeah, um, no, it's not happening for me. I I prize pride myself on on my hair too much to do that because I did not. Oh God, that was wow. So our last question, Dwayne Kitchell, at Dwayne K. What burning question that never gets asked to Mark or Caitlin that they want to cover? Oh wow. Oh, anything that you want to talk about, Mark, you can talk about. <laughs> well, this is perfect because I wanted to ask you about this because I've never asked you about this before. Um, what if, and I have this pulled up right now, actually, this was six years ago, which is wild thing about, cause that's so much longer and not longer at the same time. I don't know if you remember this, but our guy, um, not really my guy, but Mark Stein reported that the Indiana Pacers were interested in trading for Rudy Gay before the trade deadline. Considering that Rudy Gay is my favorite player of all time. I just think so much about you, you. Like I literally think at least once a week about what it would have looked like if Paul George, Rudy Gay, and, and Thad Young were in the same starting lineup. That's the kind of stuff of like my dreams. I don't think that it would have won a ton of games, but I do want to ask you about that. So, what year was this? Who else was on the roster? So that's it's 2016, I think. So Paul George's last year. Yeah. So they're basically like just waiting to trade Paul and like then you're going to have Rudy well, Gay let's, left okay, on the let's roster. Okay, let's pretend. Let's pretend. Paul's like, whoa, we traded for Rudy Gay. I don't want to leave. That that works in my head. <laughs> that right? seems so head. highly unlikely. <laughs> it works in my head. Just pretend. I mean, their plan, I think, was that they were going to try to get Gallinari and Drew Holiday. Like, And I was here for the Drew Holiday aspect of that. I kind of understand that vision. Like they would have. I mean, they needed a stretch four. Mm. They needed somebody who could defend at the point of attack. And if I'm not completely mistaken, I think that Paul George and Drew Holiday played on the same AAU team, I think, in yeah. California. But I think that my general take looking back on that was that everyone at the time thought that two players were going to fix everything for the Pacers. Like, Every other day, I was getting messages about, well, if they just got Kenneth Fareed and if they just got Rudy Gay, and I was just like, <laughs> if people they just got Kenneth Fareed. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, what a time! Oh, to Kenneth Fareed was brought up all the time, and I was just like, people, this isn't shifting anything for them. And also, like, what Rudy Gay are they getting? Like, what what is it? Toronto Rudy Gay. I'm is just it saying, Memphis please, Rudy please Gay? tread your words carefully. Is it because... San Antonio Rudy Gay? Like, which Rudy Gay is it? Because Nate McMillan is the coach, Mark. Yeah. Well, I will say this is this is pre um, pre Achilles tear, Rudy. If I remember correctly. Or Sacramento Kings, Rudy Gay. Yeah, there's a lot of Rudy Gays. I um, love Sacramento Rudy. If he's somewhat the San Antonio Rudy Gay, who didn't do quite as much inefficient stuff and did some more in the post, yeah, maybe. 
I don't think I'm super excited about it. Like, I think I'm Rudy Gay's fine. It. I'm very excited about it. Um, well, yeah, I'm glad that you uh, you indulge me for a second because I think about that a lot. Um, have you I ever will. gone and seen his UConn highlights? No. Oh, my God, Caitlin. We'll have to do a live pod someday watching his UConn highlights because it's insane. Um, I bet that there would be a big line to do that on watch playback. Mark and Caitlin watch playback of Rudy Rudy Gay's uh, UConn highlights. I think it would be tremendous, and I'm excited about it. But, you know, uh, what is your thing? I don't really have one. I'm fine just to answer your question. I didn't actually come up with one. I was going to shoehorn the Mango with the Heen review into that, but then we already had gotten to it. So, um I don't really have an open-ended question. We've answered so many. We're at two and a half hours right now. I think that we've answered over 40 questions. Uh, that is true. I, I I do want to say, though, I know you said earlier in the pod about not sure if basketball is working. Um, I've felt that a lot recently. So I I, I totally I totally feel where you're coming from. But also, I do think it's kind of cool to note that this is the biggest mailbot, mailbot, Jesus Christ. Uh, that is a, wow. This is the biggest mailbag pod that we've had in our time in Indy Cornrows. It's kind of awesome seeing how much people are interacting with our stuff. Um, I felt like we really killed it with the draft content and I'm excited to do more of that this year. And it's going to be a fun season. So I want to, I do want to thank everybody that sent in questions because they were all like very unique questions, even though we did an entire Benedict Matherin section, those were all different questions. That's why it was hard to consolidate. And I do hope one thing that my goal for the podcast is, is that we continue to get more like actual Pacer fans interacting with it because like, I appreciate fans of all teams and the people that just like basketball want to listen and read our stuff. But like a lot of these people were not Pacer fans asking us questions, like just outright telling me like, I'm a Sixers fan, but I want to know more about Benedict Matherin. So like, I want as many people listening as possible, but I hope, I do hope that we connect with more and more fans of the team that we cover. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, And hopefully we can help, uh, help grow the fan base somehow because people fall, get interested or fall in love with the team because of listening to us talk about it. So that sounds nice on my end, but Caitlin, unless you have anything else you want to get to, I think now's a good leave off point. Yep, I'm ready to head out. Awesome. Well, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want to hear from you and get your feedback. Most importantly, have a good rest of your day.